You're listening to a Big Finish production. Doctor Who, Terror of the Master by Trevor Baxendale. Performed by John Coleshaw. The old warehouse was abandoned and deserted. A cold wind rattled the broken glass in the windows, and rain dripped through the holes in the roof. Grey puddles littered the concrete floor. No one came in here anymore. The building was long disused. A home for rats and pigeons only. Occasionally, a homeless person would wander in. But it wasn't a comfortable way to spend the night. Too damp and drafty and overrun with weeds. Nevertheless, it was somewhere to lay your head in time of need. At least that's what Dan Cudgley told himself as he climbed through a hole in the wall. He was relatively new to living rough, and anywhere that wasn't on the street itself still appealed. He picked his way through the brambles towards one of the rusting steel pillars that held the remains of the roof in place. Occasionally, he stopped to pick up a sheet of cardboard or an old piece of canvas. Useful for when he bedded down for the night. Dan heard something move in the shadows on the far side of the warehouse and stopped. If it was someone else looking for a place to kip, there could be trouble. Some people were very territorial. It could be rats, he thought. He knew a bit about rats. He'd once had a job with a pest control company. The job only lasted a few weeks. But Dan had learned more than he ever wanted to know about vermin of every kind. Rats would definitely come into a place like this to get out of the rain. And they'd keep to the shadows and corners. Scuttling around the debris looking for food. Just like me, Dan thought sadly. He moved closer and peered into the gloom. He couldn't see very well in the dark. And he began to feel uneasy. There was something moving. But it couldn't be a rat. It wasn't on the floor. Whatever it was, almost seemed to be floating in the air. Hello? He called out. His voice was hoarse from disuse. He hadn't talked to another living soul in weeks. And it echoed ominously around the ruined warehouse. Anyone there? Silence. But there was definitely something in the shadows. Dan moved forward for a clearer view. Whatever was moving in the darkness by the far wall wasn't a person. Maybe it was a piece of fabric or something blowing in the draft. An old sheet caught on the ironwork. Yes, that must be it. As Dan drew nearer, the shape took on a strange luminescence. It almost appeared to be glowing in the dark. It was completely unnatural. And Dan felt the hairs rising on the back of his neck. The ancient primeval response to the uncanny. 
It wasn't a sheet blowing in the wind. It was a coruscating nimbus of energy, glowing brighter by the second, before solidifying into a mass of bubbling slime. Taller than a man, and twice as wide, Dan stared, open-mouthed. The column of slime boiled angrily, as if becoming aware of the human being that had witnessed its strange arrival. Suddenly, a hole seemed to open up in the oleaginous mass, and a jet of toxic gas emerged, enveloping Dan where he stood. He didn't last long. Starved of oxygen, poisoned by unnatural fumes, Dan sank to the floor in seconds. His face, already pale from months living in terrible conditions, turned a deathly grey. His lips turned blue. With a final, desperate gasp, Daniel Graham Cudgley died face down on the mildewed concrete. The slow hand clap echoed around the warehouse. Another man, a man who could not have been more different to the wretched, homeless individual he had just watched die, was congratulating the column of bubbling intruder. Oh, very good, very good, said a richly modulated voice. The man stayed hidden in the shadows as he spoke. I can see we are going to get on famously. The creature hissed and oozed menacingly. Oh, I know you've come a long way, a very long way indeed, said the man. You must rest, Scabus. Gather your strength. The Scabus crackled again, and the man nodded. Yes, this is the earth, and you are going to love it here. The suave, gently mocking tone suddenly hardened into the peremptory order of someone used to being obeyed. Now come. We have much to prepare. The doctor was getting itchy feet. The brigadier could tell. It was only to be expected. The sentence of exile imposed on the doctor by his mysterious superiors, the Time Lords, had long since been revoked, and his freedom to travel the universe was now fully restored. The brigadier was deeply concerned that one of these days his scientific advisor would simply disappear and never return. That had to be stopped, of course. The Doctor was far too useful to the Brigadier and to Unit and, indeed, the entire planet to let him disappear for good. The question was how to prevent it, and it was in tackling this particular problem that Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart found himself facing his most dreaded enemy. Paperwork. Lethbridge-Stewart had never shirked a hard day's work in his life, and he wasn't about to start now. He sat up straight, and squared his shoulders, fixing the pile of documents on his desk with his most implacable stare. A stare that had caused hardened troops to quail and brought tough-talking sergeants springing to attention. He hoped that somewhere in these files and reports was a scientific mystery so tantalising or a threat so pernicious 
that the doctor wouldn't be able to resist it. The brigadier knew full well that the doctor's one great weakness, well, one of them, was a terrible and insatiable curiosity. All he had to do was find something, anything, that might pique the doctor's interest. The problem was that things had been rather quiet recently on the alien invasion front. Suspiciously so, as far as the brigadier was concerned. But with no identifiable and imminent threat from outer space to deal with, he was forced to rely on rather more homegrown problems. Where were all the mad scientists when you needed them, though? Where were the out-of-control scientific research facilities or lunatic astronauts? There wasn't so much as a nesting globe fragment or a Silurian footprint to be found anywhere. So Lethbridge Stewart was forced into checking what he privately thought of as the slush pile. This was where the less-than-urgent reports of mysterious lights in the sky and sundry UFO sightings went. They had already been routinely checked and dismissed, but kept on file for future reference. Just in case. He picked up the first report and opened it. There was a blurry picture of some furry creature in the forest. There was a newspaper cutting which read, Sussex Sasquatch spotted again. The brigadier snorted. Sussex Sasquatch. He knew for a fact that the story had already been debunked. A backpacking hippie, apparently. The next report was about a homeless man found dead from an unexplained asphyxia in an abandoned warehouse several months ago. The coroner had written it off as misadventure. It certainly wasn't the sort of thing to interest the doctor, anyway. And the brigadier now considered it a matter for the police. He threw the report down and picked up another. Scientist goes missing. There weren't many details and nothing to indicate that the case involved extraterrestrial interference. The brigadier closed it and took another. Strange lights seen above Heathrow Airport. There were always strange lights above Heathrow Airport. He sighed and picked up another file, reading out the article titled with contempt. Are the French tunnelling beneath the English Channel? What absolute rot. Besides, Unit didn't classify the French as aliens. The brigadier sat back and picked up another file. This was going to take some time. Oh, dear, oh dear. Exactly ten minutes later, Captain Yates visibly jumped as the telephone on his desk rang. Things had been so quiet around HQ recently that the sudden noise was positively startling. He snatched up the receiver. The brigadier's voice crackled down the line. Captain Yates, where's the doctor? I'm not sure, sir. In his lab, I shouldn't wonder. That'll be the day. He's never there when I go looking for him. No, sir, replied Yates, wondering what else he could say. Uh, find him for me, will you? said the brigadier. I've got something here that might tickle his fancy. Are you sure, sir? Yates licked his lips nervously. He never liked to question his senior officer, but he felt that something had to be said. He's been a bit off recently. I think he's still missing Joe. Um, 
Miss Grant? Well, of course he is, Yates. We all are. It's no good everyone mooning around HQ when there's work to be done. Yates brightened a little. And is there, sir, work to be done? There was an uncomfortable pause. There may be something, yes, worth a look anyway. But I need my scientific advisor's opinion. The doctor's still on the unit payroll, so we might as well get our use out of him while we can. Check the lab, just in case. And if he's not there, find Sergeant Benton. If anyone knows where the doctor is, he will. At that moment, Sergeant Benton happened to be standing in the doctor's laboratory. He was alone, apart from the workbenches, computers, and an old blue police box standing incongruously in one corner. The sight of that box reassured Benton. It meant that the doctor was here somewhere. Still, it seemed odd to find the lab empty. No doctor busy with one of his experiments. And no Joe Grant chit-chatting away as she assisted. Joe had left unit quite recently. And the whole of HQ was bereft. Benton, like practically everyone else here, missed her bright smile and energetic personality terribly and no one missed them more than the doctor himself. Like the brigadier, Benton knew it wouldn't be long before the doctor decided there was no real reason to stay around anymore. He could take off in his TARDIS, the old police box, and that would be the last anyone saw of him. That was one of the reasons why Benton had stopped by the lab on the way to his patrol, just to check that the TARDIS was still there. He wandered over to the old box and put his hand on its weathered surface. It was cool, but there was a distinct hum, a vibration, that was always detectable. Benton recalled the time he had been inside that impossible box, in reality a complex space-time craft, and smiled. Sergeant Benton? Benton leapt back from the TARDIS and snapped to attention. Sir? Captain Yates stood in the doorway, Looking for the doctor, Sergeant? Uh, no, sir. I, I mean, yes, sir. Yates smiled. You're not the only one. The Briggs after him, too. Any idea where he is? He might be down by the garages, Benton said. Corporal Hansen's helping him out. Oh, really? Good. Thanks, Benton. Sir, Benton said. Permission to speak freely? Of course. Look, I wouldn't bother the doc if I were you. Not unless it was really important. Yates raised an eyebrow. And why is that exactly? Well, he's like a bear with a sore head at the moment, sir. You know, with Joe gone. I know, said Yates. But it's no use everyone mooning about HQ like they've lost a pound and found a penny, is it? The brig wants him and that's that. Benton stiffened. Yes, sir. Maybe it's just what the doctor needs. Something to snap him out of it. Yates smiled. Maybe it's something we all need. Daisy Hansen had always been fascinated by flying machines and vehicles of every kind. An open-minded school careers officer who had trained Spitfire pilots during World War II pointed Daisy, his hardest-working and most interesting pupil, firmly in the direction of the Women's Royal Air Force at the age of 16. Her skill with engines and aircraft of every kind led her commanding officer to remark that Daisy could walk straight into the Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers as a vehicle mechanic if she'd wanted. Instead, 
the freshly promoted Corporal Handsome, was given the chance to transfer on temporary secondment to the United Nations Intelligence Task Force, where she was warmly welcomed and immediately put to work on one of the most fascinating projects she could ever imagine. The project in question was an outlandish-looking vehicle that was part racing car and part... well, was it an aeroplane or a hovercraft? It was silver, with curved delta wings and a cockpit, but it was no bigger than an ordinary saloon car. There were no wheels, but there was some kind of propulsion unit underneath that kept the thing floating a few inches above the road surface. Daisy couldn't explain how it actually worked, but she certainly enjoyed helping the man who had designed it. And that man was currently laying underneath the vehicle with a set of spanners and an assortment of strange-looking tools Daisy simply couldn't identify. The mechanic's trolley suddenly rolled out from beneath the car, and the man lying on it said, Pass me the polytronic converter, would you, my dear? I think I left it on Bessie. Bessie was one of the other vehicles in the unit garage, a bright yellow Edwardian roadster parked alongside a row of army Land Rovers. In true army style, the engineers that had originally procured the vintage transport had also managed to obtain a personalised number plate. Who won? In jokey acknowledgement of the owner's mysterious identity. Daisy helped to keep Bessie maintained and ready for use, along with the jeeps, and she knew the old car well. She retrieved the polytronic converter, or what she assumed was the polytronic converter, from the front seat, and jogged back to the man lying on the trolley. Here you go, sir. The man took the device and sat up. After a moment's thought, he got to his feet. He was a good deal taller than Daisy, with a deeply lined, rather lived-in face, and a shock of white hair. He wore a frilled dress shirt and bow tie, but there wasn't a speck of engine oil to be seen on them. Oh, good grief, how many times? He snapped. You don't have to keep calling me, sir. Yes, sir, replied Daisy automatically. Sorry, sir. The doctor sighed. I mean doctor, said Daisy quickly. The doctor nodded approvingly. That's better. Then, softening his tone a little, added, I'm not really one for all that military nonsense, you know. Sorry, sir. Force of habit, sir. I mean, doctor. The doctor smiled. And it was one of the nicest smiles Daisy could remember seeing. What's your name, Corporal? He asked. Daisy told him and tried not to frown. She'd had to battle against her name all her life. It's not a very good name for a mechanic, she added. Nonsense, replied the doctor. It's an excellent name for an excellent mechanic. As I once said to Winston Churchill, names are... He was interrupted by Daisy leaping into a salute so rigid she nearly dislocated a shoulder. Sir, at ease, Corporal, said the brigadier, who had just wandered into the garage. Daisy snapped into the at-ease position. It wouldn't do to mess up in front of the top brass. Oh, oh, it's you, said the doctor. And Daisy boggled at the cheery disrespect in his voice. The brigadier merely raised an eyebrow. Tracked you down at last, doctor. Sergeant Benton was quite right. Might have known you'd be here. Well, where else would I be? The doctor asked, rather peevishly. 
I don't know, replied the brigadier. Mars, Jupiter, the 17th century, possibilities are endless. Yes, they are, the doctor agreed. And it's high time I started exploring them, instead of running around after you. And yet, here you are, working away in the unit garage on your, uh, whatever that thing is. The brigadier cast a somewhat withering look at the silver vehicle beside them. Yes. Well, that's the thing with habits, muttered the doctor. They're quite difficult to break, especially the bad ones. Quite so, said the brigadier. Which is why I thought you should look at this. He held out a manila file, marked top secret. Came across my desk this morning. UFO sighting in this very area. Unusual stuff. Low level. Stayed in the night sky for nearly 40 minutes. There were quite a few reports, eyewitness accounts, and an amateur photographer got some snaps. I'd like your opinion on them. The doctor sighed. Oh, really, Brigadier? UFO sightings? The Brigadier's moustache twitched. That is what unit was set up for, Doctor. The odd. The unexplained. Anything on Earth or beyond. The Doctor flicked the file open and shuffled through the grainy black and white pictures inside. Oh, good grief, he said eventually. What is it? asked the brigadier eagerly. Alien reconnaissance, invasion scout, landing craft? No, the doctor said. It's me, giving my new car a test flight last week. What? Let me see. Lethbridge Stewart snatched the photos back and compared them to the doctor's new car parked right beside him. Daisy leaned forward just enough to see for herself. The pictures, blurry as they were, showed a saucer-shaped vehicle with upswept silver wings. It was clearly identifiable. The brigadier's face flushed with annoyance. Well, of all the confounded... I mean, for heaven's sake, doctor, what on earth do you think you're playing at? The doctor smiled. Sorry to disappoint you, old chap. A flying car, the brigadier said scornfully. Is that what you've been wasting unit funds on? What's wrong with that old thing you normally tootle around in? Now it was the doctor's turn to look indignant. Tootle around? Now see here, brigadier. I've never tootled anywhere in my life. For your information, Bessie happens to be one of the most advanced motor vehicles on the planet. I've made a number of special modifications... I can guarantee that as well as being able to outperform a Formula One racing car, she has a conversion engine that nullifies all form of carbon emission. Carbon what? Are you telling me it runs on firewood or something? The doctor sighed again. No, Brigadier. But all petrol engines emit carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. A typical passenger vehicle emits about 4.6 metric tons of carbon dioxide per year. And that's bad, is it? Cumulatively, it could be disastrous. There are more cars being manufactured than ever before, and the numbers are only going to increase, which means that the pollution they cause is going to increase. One day, in the not-too-distant future, it could reach levels that affect the Earth's atmosphere so badly, the entire climate will change. I see. The brigadier drawled with all the enthusiasm he could muster, which, in the circumstances, wasn't very much. And Bessie's... Put a stop to that, has she? Um, it? I'm afraid not. I made Bessie carbon neutral, you see. That means she doesn't add to the pollution. But she doesn't take any away either. 
My new card, on the other hand, is designed to be carbon negative. The doctor leaned over the silver saucer shape and picked up a sheaf of blueprints, which he proceeded to show the brigadier. You see, I've reversed the polarity of the catalytic conversion, which means the motor will absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And all very fascinating, I'm sure, interrupted Lethbridge Stewart quickly, but hardly top of the priority list for unit, and a considerable waste of Corporal Hanson's valuable time. Daisy jumped to the mention of her name. Sir, she said, because she couldn't think of any other suitable response. Now, Corporal Hanson has provided me with invaluable assistance, said the doctor, but only after completing her other duties. I think you'll find the unit Land Rovers are all in tip-top working order, Brigadier, as is your staff car. Daisy felt a warm glow of satisfaction. It wasn't often you got a compliment in this game. Is that right, Corporal? asked the Brigadier. Daisy saluted. Sir, yes, sir. All vehicles present and correct, sir. The doctor made sure of that, sir. It's been a pleasure working with him on this project, and I've learned a thing or two that might come in useful, sir. Lethbridge Stewart's eyes narrowed. I see. Well, when you've quite finished patting each other on the back, perhaps you could remind the doctor that UNIT is supposed to be a top-secret organization, and to confine his aerial displays to places out of view of the local UFO spotters. With a sharp, authoritative sniff, the brigadier turned on his heel and marched away. The doctor watched him go with a thoughtful expression on his face, which Corporal Hansen couldn't quite read. In the BBC Three News Studio at Television Centre, another doctor was preparing to talk about the dangers of air pollution to a much larger audience. Dr Derek Drake cut a slightly eccentric figure, old but not elderly, untidy but not dishevelled, stooping but not tall. His hair and beard were white and short, his eyes roomy but sharp, his voice gentle but convincing. In TV terms, he was pure gold. Gerald Farley, long-time presenter of the current affairs science programme Insight Out, checked his microphone was working properly and waved the makeup girl away with an impatient flick of his wrist. He gave his moustache one last stroke and then, listening to the director counting down to recording in his ear mic, turned to the remarkably unremarkable man sitting in the chair opposite, ready for the interview. Not long now, Gerald said, in what he considered his most professional and reassuring tones. Ready when you are, said Dr Drake, with a patient smile. The director's countdown ended. The floor manager made a sweeping gesture with one arm to signal for complete silence in the studio as recording began. And the red light illuminated on camera one. Hello, said Gerald, addressing the camera. And welcome to another edition of Insight Out. Tonight, I'm pleased to have in the studio with me the nation's favourite scientist, Dr Derek Drake. Hello, said Dr Drake. Dr Drake, you've been variously described as a genius, a charlatan, and a fruitcake. Which is correct? <laughs> the laughter of the studio audience was matched by the same warm humour from Drake. Well... The people who like what I say call me a genius. The people who don't like what I say call me a charlatan. And I think we all know what they are. And fruitcake? asked Gerald. Well, everyone likes a bit of fruitcake, don't they? Gerald smiled 
as the audience laughed again. <laughs> Absolutely. But if I may just be serious for a moment, I'd like to refer to your recent paper on what you call the West's over-reliance on fossil fuels, for which you have just this week been shortlisted for the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, although I've no idea why that should be, said Drake. It's not peace I'm advocating after all. It's war. War on pollution. War on petrol. A war on the energy crisis. The whole world had been in the grip of an energy crisis for several months. The result of an oil embargo in the Middle East, which had led to fuel shortages and hugely inflated prices. Many countries, particularly those that relied on the motor industry for their continued prosperity, were looking for alternative sources of power. Gerald, like the rest of the country, was quite excited by the idea of a war on the energy crisis. No one liked paying too much for petrol after all. And so, do you believe, Dr Drake, he said, that you have the answer to all our problems? Dr Drake smiled. His eyes which held the hard glint of real intelligence, twinkled with good humour. I'm not sure I can solve everybody's problems, Gerald. He paused for the audience laughter, the mark, Gerald thought, of a natural performer. But I can promise you this. If we fight back now, and fight back hard, we can defeat this particular problem, and many more besides. Really? Such as? Dr Drake counted them off on his fingers. Energy, oil, petrol, pollution. We can offset each against the other. We can use the energy crisis to find new, different, safer methods to power our cars, our homes and our industries. So you're saying petrol isn't safe? It is grotesquely unsafe, declared Dr Drake. Not only is it difficult and costly to produce and maintain, especially now, but it's highly flammable and energy inefficient, and the carbon emissions are, quite frankly, intolerable. Carbon emissions? Gerald frowned. The internal combustion engine also produces far too much carbon dioxide as a byproduct, the kind of emission which will inflict terrible damage on our environment if left unchecked. Surely you exaggerate. No, previous attempts to deal with pollution in the atmosphere have all ended in failure. We must not fail again. The science is still there, Gerald. The solution lies in science, too. You mean the new energy process you refer to in your paper, of course? Well, it would certainly be a start. Can you describe this new process for the benefit of tonight's audience? Of course. At Unit HQ, Mike Yates was switching on the television set in the doctor's lab. It would take a minute or so to warm up. Even though the doctor had half dismantled it and made a few improvements, some things were still beyond the humble cathode ray tube. Hoping to catch the magic roundabout, Captain Yates? Asked the brigadier as he walked in. Well, no, not quite, sir. I wanted to see a bit of insight out, actually. Ah, who's on this week? Not Magnus Pike again, I hope. No, don't you like him, sir? The brigadier arched an eyebrow. Reminds me too much of the doctor. Yates smiled. Did you find him, by the way? Yes. He was wasting his time and Corporal Hansen's in the unit garage. Just like a flying saucer or some such rubbish. In the end, I left him to it. So long as the doctor's down there. 
Lethbridge Stewart glanced meaningfully at the TARDIS standing in the corner of the lab. Well, he's not, ah. Uh... His voice drifted off. Gone, finished Yates, helpfully. Or oh, precisely. The TV came on at that point, and Yates switched it over to BBC Three. The picture on the screen showed Gerald Farley and Dr Derek Drake sitting opposite each other in the Insight Out studio. Oh, no, groaned the brigadier. Not that Drake fellow. He reminds me of the doctor, too. All scientists remind you of the doctor, sir. Quite possibly. What's he on about, anyway? Turn the sound up. Yates suggested a control, and Dr Drake's voice filled the lab. The is quite simple. Even if the science behind it is complex, first we must establish as fact that fossil fuels are both toxic and finite. They will run out one day because we will exhaust the Earth's supply in our desperate need for fuel. But before we even reach that point, the carbon emissions will have poisoned the very air we breathe, perhaps irreversibly. You see said the brigadier, arching an eyebrow. Sounds just like the doctor. The next best alternative is nuclear power. Dr Drake continued. It is cleaner and safer, but not without risk. If we can properly harness nuclear power, however, rendering it completely safe and miniaturising it for use in the home and in cars and aircraft, then we have a future. But, Dr Drake argued Gerald Farley. We don't have nearly enough nuclear power stations. And what we do have carry very serious health risks. Look at Windscale, for instance, or the recent business at Newton. This is where my process comes in, Gerald, replied Drake smoothly. I'm due to meet the Minister for Ecology and leading figures at the Atomic Energy Authority to discuss changes to Britain's nuclear power industry tomorrow. This sounds like an exclusive, said Gerald. You could say that. I have the backing of the government, industry leaders and consumers to introduce measures which will significantly reduce the risk of nuclear power across the board and allow for its use domestically at source. Well, this sounds somewhat revolutionary, commented Gerald. Indeed, echoed the brigadier suspiciously. I think it's a jolly good idea, said Yates. It's about time someone took the initiative when it comes to solving the energy crisis. At that moment, a loud voice in the corridor outside boomed. And so I said, it's me, in my new car. This was followed by a roar of laughter. The doctor burst into the lab with Benton in tow. Benton stifled his guffaws as he caught sight of the brigadier and Captain Yates. Ah, oh, doctor, said Yates quickly. We were just discussing the energy crisis. I said it was about time someone did something about it. I couldn't agree with you more, Mike, said the doctor, registering the thunder expression on the brigadier's face. We were just watching Dr Drake, Mike said. He's about to solve the energy crisis, and a good thing, too. Yes, agreed the brigadier ruefully. He's right up your street, doctor. Have us all peddling our motor cars around like Fred Flintstone soon. It really isn't a laughing matter, Lethbridge Stewart, admonished the doctor. Well, I sometimes think your time could be better spent trying to solve the Earth's energy crisis, doctor, retorted Lethbridge Stewart. He nodded at the television. Take a leaf out of this chap's book, for instance. He's not wasting his time designing flying saucers. 
The doctor glanced at the TV screen for the first time. No? And who might that be? Dr. Derek Drake, said Yates. Current darling of the media and national treasure in the making. He's all over the place at the moment, said Sergeant Benton. He was on Pebble Mill the other day. The brigadier rolled his eyes, but Benton continued regardless. He looks like someone's granddad, but he's quite the boffin. Says we don't need petrol. He can give us all cheap and safe nuclear power. Uh, does he indeed, said the doctor, rubbing his chin. Then as he looked at the television for a moment longer, his eyes suddenly widened. Good grief! What's the matter? asked Yates. Well, don't you see? the doctor asked. Use your eyes, man! Everyone looked at the TV. Gerald Farley was still chatting amiably to Dr. Drake. The audience laughed warmly. Can't you see it? the doctor asked again. He stared incredulously at his unit colleagues. That man you say is Dr. Drake. He is no such thing. What do you mean? Benton asked, clearly puzzled. The doctor looked back at the TV screen. Sitting opposite Gerald Farley was a dark, saturnine-looking man with jet-black eyes and a neatly trimmed beard. The doctor knew him only too well. It's the master, he said. Everyone in the lab turned to look at the television again. Where? asked the brigadier, squinting. There, the doctor said, jabbing a long finger at the screen. The master! Well, don't tell me you don't recognize him. They all peered at the screen again. No, said Captain Yates. I can see Gerald Farley and Dr. Drake. I can't see any sign of the master. That man you say is Dr. Drake is the master, the doctor insisted. Sorry, Doc, said Sergeant Benton. He doesn't look anything like him. What? The doctor frowned and looked at his friends as they stared, bemused. And then looked back at the television. The master was his oldest and deadliest enemy. A renegade time lord like himself, but devoted to evil. He had crossed swords with the doctor, quite literally on one occasion, during his exile on Earth and was no stranger to unit. The doctor peered at the man on the television screen again. There was no mistaking him. Tell me what you see, he instructed the others. That's Dr. Derek Drake, all right, said Yates. I'd know him anywhere. Very well, describe him, the doctor ordered. Small, elderly, white hair and beard. Looks a bit scruffy. Could he be the master in disguise? suggested Benton. He's done that sort of thing before, after all. That's hardly likely, Benton, said Lethbridge Stewart, witheringly. The Master's the most wanted man on the planet. He'd hardly want to be interviewed on national television, even in disguise. I'm telling you, that man is the Master, said the Doctor. He crossed the lab and took his caped Inverness from the coat stand. Wait, Doctor, said the Brigadier. Where do you think you're off to? Television centre, the doctor declared. You're going after Dr. Drake? asked Yates incredulously. No, I'm going after the master. Brigadier, I suggest you lay on a couple of jeeps and follow me with some men. If we hurry... Now, hold on, doctor, warned Lesbridge Stewart. We can't just go crashing into the BBC arresting people willy-nilly. 
Well, why ever not? Well, it's the BBC. It's not the way they do things. The doctor pointed at the television again. Brigadier, I don't need to tell you that that man is the most evil being in the cosmos. We have to stop him. On the TV screen, Dr. Derek Drake continued to chat amiably with Gerald Farley. The doctor did a double take. Good heavens, he breathed. It's not possible. Looking now, the man sitting in the studio was quite clearly Dr. Drake. Rather slight, a little eccentric, white-haired, avuncular. There was a ripple of laughter from the TV audience. I think you're seeing things, Doctor, said Mike Yates with a smile. The Doctor glared at the television. Now, for once, for once I'm somewhat lost for words. Let's hear what Drake's got to say, suggested the Brigadier. In television centre, Gerald Farley was bringing the interview to a close. It had been a good night. The audience were warm, receptive, happy to laugh at his jokes and Drake's. The old man seemed to be enjoying himself, even if some of his ideas were pretty hard-hitting. Gerald wondered if this was part of his success. So, in conclusion, Gerald said, you believe the human race has gone far enough with fossil fuels and should look to your new nuclear solution for its future. I suppose so, yes, said Dr. Drake, and smiled. I know it won't be easy, but the alternative is far worse. You are convinced your process can be successfully adapted to modern nuclear power stations. Oh, yes, and what's more, so is the Atomic Energy Authority. Then, Dr. Derek Drake, it remains only for me to wish you the very best of British, and thank you for talking to me tonight. Gerald smiled and turned to camera one. I'm Gerald Farley, and that was Inside Out. Join us again next week when I'll be talking to... Yates turned the TV off, and the picture disappeared into a small dot as the current left the cathode ray tube. So there you have it, Dr. Derek Drake... Rather an odd little man, don't you think? said the brigadier. He's a very well-respected scientist, sir, argued Yates. Hmm, said Lethbridge Stewart, as if this simply confirmed his diagnosis. Well, doctor, what do you think? The doctor frowned deeply and rubbed his chin. Something's not right. Well, you have been under a lot of stress recently, doctor, said Yates. And with Joe gone... Don't bring Miss Grant into this, Captain Yates, said the doctor sharply. Benton coughed politely. Mrs. Jones now, Doc. The doctor glared at him. Joe has nothing to do with it. Quite the opposite, in fact. I've had plenty of time to think since she left. It's quite clear to me that my time with the unit may be drawing to an end. There was a sudden, very awkward silence in the lab. But, but you're needed here, Doctor said the brigadier. You are still unit's official scientific advisor after all. Official, brigadier, the doctor queried, raising an eyebrow. Official or not, doctor, there's something distinctly odd about that Drake fellow, wouldn't you agree? Lethbridge Stewart clutched at the most likely straw he could see that might keep the doctor on earth. 
And you did say you saw the master. I'm not so sure now, the doctor replied. For a moment back there, I thought, but... No. It can't have been him, can it? Only one way to find out. Investigate. Isn't that a little rash, sir? Asked Yates. Dr. Derek Drake is a well-known TV personality and scientist. Being a bit odd isn't enough to warrant investigation by units, surely. You heard what the doctor said, Captain Yates. Lethbridge Stewart bristled. This Drake fellow could be the master. Not exactly. The doctor corrected him. I said I saw the master. Yates smiled disarmingly. You have to admit it seems a little far-fetched, sir. No one else here saw him. We can hardly start accusing Dr. Derek Drake of being an intergalactic menace to mankind. The brigadier's moustache twitched. Yates had a point. Well, Doctor? The Doctor sat down on a lab stool and pondered the question. Uh, Mike's quite right. We've no reason to investigate Drake for anything. His concern for the environmental damage caused by carbon dioxide pollution is based on sound scientific evidence. You and I were talking about something similar just before. Ah, yes. That wretched new car of yours that sucks carbon dioxide out of the air. Sounds marvellous, said Yates. Just the sort of thing Dr. Drake would approve of. That may very well be true, the doctor conceded. But it uses technology which is completely beyond anything known on Earth at this time. Makes you wonder what Drake's come up with, doesn't it? said Benton. The doctor looked thoughtful. Yes. Yes, yes, it does. Gerald Farley made a point of shaking Dr. Drake's hand after the interview. The cameras had stopped recording, the studio audience were being herded out, and the floor manager was trying to usher Gerald and Drake towards the green room, where the programme's guests could go to relax before and after the broadcast. So very pleased you could come on the programme, Joel told him. He held out his hand. Drake looked at it for a moment and then reached out, as if he was unused to such friendliness. Or perhaps, Gerald thought, he just thought it oddly formal and old-fashioned. Gerald always made a point of treating the guests on Inside Out with respect. He hoped that word would spread that he was a welcoming host and that it was a good programme to appear on. Drake's hand was rather cold and clammy, Gerald thought. Odd, the way some people got nervous in front of the cameras. He never did. He ended the handshake rather quickly, because it was a little uncomfortable, and gestured for the old man to go before him towards the green room. Dr Drake hesitated, frowning, and then winced in pain. I say, are you all right? Yes, said Drake although his voice sounded a little strained. I'm just uh, a bit tired, that's all. Just follow Bill, the floor manager, Gerald advised. I expect you could do with a drink. A nice cup of tea would be very much appreciated, said Dr. Drake. Of course. Or something stronger, if you'd like. We could always go to the bar if you'd prefer a... I prefer tea, Drake insisted. No alcohol, please. That's fine. Gerald replied, hiding his disappointment. He followed the old man and Bill out of the studio and into the green room. 
Dr. Drake sat down immediately in one of the armchairs and rubbed his forehead. Headache? Gerald asked. Something like that, Drake replied. Gerald busied himself making a cup of tea for the old man. I think it all went very well, Gerald said. The show, I mean, the audience seemed to like you. Yes, Drake said. That's because they like being told the truth. Gerald handed the old man his tea. Quite a hard truth, though. People are very attached to their cars. Drake nodded. True, but they are more attached to their lives and the lives of their children. They understand the dangers. Because you tell them about the dangers? No one is more attached to their cars than the car industry. And, of course, the oil and petrol industry. They have good reason not to tell the truth. There is some hope, at least, Gerald said. Your process. Clean, safe, cheap nuclear fuel? Yes. The old man murmured absently. He still hadn't touched his tea. Are you sure you're all right, Dr. Drake? Gerald asked, concerned. Would you like me to call a doctor? Drake looked up sharply. No. No, thank you. I'll be fine in a minute. I just need to rest. It's been a long day. Gerald nodded. He hoped Drake wasn't going to have a heart attack or something. That would be very bad press for Insight Out. Perhaps he should stay with the old man for a while, just to make sure. Sergeant Benton stood in the unit lab on his own and winced. He could hear the doctor and the brigadier arguing from here, and they were in Lethbridge Stewart's office with the door shut. It was a fact that the doctor and Lethbridge Stewart failed to see eye to eye on certain matters, and the doctor, free of any military conditioning, was only too willing to raise his voice when he thought it was warranted. The problem was that the brig was no stranger to a parade ground bellow either. Mike Yates was probably in the office too, desperately trying to keep the peace. Benton didn't envy him at all. But if it is the answer to the world's problems, the brigadier's voice drifted along the corridor, then why not use it to benefit the entire planet? My dear Lethbridge Stewart, retorted the doctor without any indication that the salutation was genuine. You have completely failed to grasp the real problem here. Benton decided that he didn't want to listen to any more. He would leave them all to it and go in search of a sandwich. The world's in the middle of an energy crisis, said the brigadier, and I can assure you that my new car isn't the solution. Mike Yates cleared his throat and, in as calm and affable a manner as he could manage, said, What would you say is the answer, then, Doctor? The Doctor glared at him. Where do you suggest I start, Mike? The energy crisis isn't the only problem facing the Earth. There's pollution, population explosion, crime, poverty, most of which the human race brings on itself. It strikes me that it's worth starting somewhere, said the Brigadier, and the energy crisis is as good a place as any. Your new car could be the answer, Doctor. Why not use that technology to benefit the whole world? Hard to disagree with that, agreed Yates. Jolly good idea, in fact. I dare say you could make a pretty penny along the way, too, suggested the Brigadier. As if this was inducement enough for anyone. The Doctor shot him a withering look. I'm not interested in money, Brigadier. 
and I wasn't sent here by the Time Lords to solve all your problems. Interference of that kind is why I was exiled in the first place, you know. I've only just been granted my freedom. I'm hardly going to jeopardise that by altering the Earth's future history, am I? Future history? queried Mike. Things will get much worse before they get better, Mike, said the Doctor solemnly. More petrol, more diesel, more pollution. The human race doesn't really wake up to the problem until well into the 21st century. By which time it's... Well, the Doctor trailed off uncomfortably without finishing. At least Dr. Drake is doing something to try and help us now, Mike said. We still don't know exactly what he is doing, argued the Doctor. He was rather vague about it in the interview, I thought. Naturally, said Lethbridge Stewart. Doesn't want anyone else stealing his ideas. The Russians, for instance, or the Chinese. When are you humans going to realise that you're all in this together? Thundered the Doctor. You've got one planet, and you're all on it. You're like chickens arguing amongst yourselves while the fox circles the coop. Well, there's only one fox I'm really interested in now, said Lethbridge Stewart. Calls himself the Master. You said you saw him on the television, Doctor. Well, I thought I did. Sitting in Dr. Drake's place, just for a moment. The uncertainty seemed to take the wind out of the Doctor's sails a little. He rubbed the back of his neck as if trying to alleviate a headache. He has disguised himself before, the brigadier pointed out. Many times. Yes, not like this. The disguise, if it was one, appeared after I'd seen the master. Bit unlikely, don't you think? said Mike. Dr. Drake's been all over the telly for ages, appearing on every kind of programme. He was even on Blue Peter last week, so I'm told. Well, that settles it, replied the brigadier. If he's been on Blue Peter, he must be all right. Uh, Mike's got a point, you know, said the doctor, not unkindly. Would be a terrible risk to appear in public so often, if it was a disguise, even for the master. Nothing's foolproof. The brigadier stood up. There's only one way to find out, he said mildly. Really? said the doctor. And what's that? We'll do as you suggested. Go and ask Dr. Drake. The doctor's car wasn't finished yet, so he used Bessie for the journey to Television Centre. I hope you know what you're doing, Doctor, said the brigadier. He had to raise his voice above the healthy purr of the old car's engine and general traffic. He had one gloved hand placed firmly on his officer's cap to stop it blowing away. The doctor tooled Bessie expertly through the early evening rush hour, ignoring the angry blare of horns at every junction with the blithe confidence of the true eccentric. His cape flapped in the slipstream like the wings of a bird of prey closing in for the kill. The brigadier wasn't at all sure about this Drake person, but the fact that the doctor had mentioned the master was enough for him now. Anything that could keep the doctor on unit business was fine by him and finding proof of the Master's involvement would be perfect. A small part of Lethbridge Stewart hoped it was the Master. He was a thorough-going swine and a threat to the entire human race. And that's exactly the sort of thing that Unit had been set up to combat. And combat 
was exactly the sort of thing the Brigadier thrived on. The great circular edifice of Television Centre came into view as the Doctor brought Bessie around the corner of Wood Lane and motored towards the entrance. The old car screeched to a halt at the barrier, where a uniformed man asked to inspect their passes. Don't be ridiculous, snapped the Doctor. This is the BBC, not the FBI. All the same, sir, I must see your visitors pass, said the Commissioner. The Brigadier showed him his unit pass. Official business, he said brusquely. We are here to see Dr. Derek Drake on a matter of urgency. The Commissioner knew that Dr. Drake was some bigwig in the nuclear industry, so he decided that this indeed must be a security matter and released the barrier. You're in luck, he said. Dr. Drake hasn't left yet, but you'll need to hurry. An ex-forces man himself, the Commissioner automatically saluted the Brigadier as Bessie shot forward with an impatient screech of burning rubber. The entrance foyer of BBC Television Centre was rather busy, full of people coming and going, many of whom Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart thought he half recognised. He spotted a couple of newsreaders, a weatherman, and inevitably, Bruce Forsyth, who was holding court with customer enthusiasm on the far side of the lobby. The Brigadier's heart sank a little when he saw a pair of thin, Angular arms gesticulating wildly by the reception desk. He knew Magnus Pike all right, and so did the doctor, who had already responded with a hearty wave of greeting. For goodness sake, doctor, don't call him over, cautioned the brigadier. We'll be here all night. But Pike had been distracted by something else already. The arrival of some television producers and a floor manager accompanying Dr. Derek Drake from one of the interior rooms. That's our man, isn't it? asked Lethbridge Stewart quietly. That remains to be seen, Brigadier, replied the doctor thoughtfully. He stared intently at Dr. Drake, as if trying to peer through any kind of disguise. What do you see then, Doctor? asked the Brigadier. Nothing unusual. Dr. Drake appeared to be exactly as expected. Slightly stooped, almost scruffy, with white hair and a benign expression. One of the television people was chatting away to him, but Drake did look rather tired. Doesn't look well, does he? mused the brigadier. The doctor frowned, concentrating, and then suddenly started to march across the foyer towards the scientist. The brigadier hurried after him. Well, my dear Dr. Drake, exclaimed the doctor warmly, extending his hand. Drake looked up at the tall, imposing figure in the frilly shirt and cloak. For once, the brigadier realised, the doctor didn't look too out of place. Here, among the great and the good of the entertainment industry, unit's scientific advisor could have been mistaken for a stage magician or a game show host, and no one would have batted an eyelid. Dr Drake gave no impression of surprise, nor, more disappointingly, alarm. The brigadier had hoped to see some spark of recognition in those shrewd old eyes. Anything to give away the fact that Drake might be the master in disguise. But there was nothing. Drake shook the doctor's hand politely, but without enthusiasm. I read your paper on the impact of carbon emissions on the atmosphere, said the doctor. 
Drake's eyes widened a little at this. I wrote that a long time ago. It's rather ahead of your time, I thought, the doctor commented. Perhaps, Drake admitted with a modest shrug. It was widely derided when it was published. People often fail to spot a genius when they're standing right in front of them, the doctor remarked. The brigadier thought he was being rather pointed, obviously intending to provoke a reaction. Or perhaps, he wondered briefly, it was aimed at him. But Drake simply smiled, pulling a face as if to say, It's of no matter now. I'm sorry, said the young floor manager, accompanying the old man. Dr Drake is very keen to return to his hotel now. He hasn't got time to sign autographs. I don't want an autograph, said the doctor. But I would like a little chat, if I may. The floor manager cleared his throat. I'm afraid that's not possible. Dr Drake has to leave now. Please, I insist, the doctor objected. It's terribly important. Drake seemed to wilt. I'm afraid I can't stop to talk. I am very tired, and I have an important meeting with the energy minister and business leaders tomorrow. It's very important that I rest. For a second, the brigadier thought the doctor was going to reach out and give the old man's nose a tug. To check his face wasn't actually a clever rubber mask. The master had used such tricks before with great success. But in truth, there was no way this could be the master. Drake's diminutive figure and stoop appeared totally genuine, and even the doctor seemed reluctant to assault a much-loved personality in front of everyone. Eventually, the doctor simply nodded and said, oh, Very well. Perhaps we could talk again one day. Yes, perhaps, said Drake. The doctor held out his hand once more. Drake stared at it for a long moment and then shook it again before letting go. The doctor said, Tell me, Dr. Drake, have you ever heard of someone who calls himself the Master? Lethbridge Stewart caught his breath. The question had been asked casually, as if it was an afterthought. It was designed, he was sure, to catch the old man off guard, to provoke a sharp look or a slight widening of the eyes, any kind of indication, however minute, that might give the game away. But there was nothing. Drake, without any hesitation, simply looked puzzled. Who? No. No, I haven't, he frowned. What an odd question. Should I have? The floor manager stepped forward again, and this time he adopted a much firmer attitude. Look, I really must insist that you leave Dr. Drake alone now. He cast an irritated glance at the doctor and the brigadier, and then turned back to the old man. There's a car waiting to take you to your hotel, doctor. Oh, good, Drake said as the floor manager ushered him towards the exit. The old scientist walked out of the building without a backward glance, as if his encounter with the doctor had already been dismissed from his mind as of no importance. Well, doctor, the brigadier asked, as the door swung shut. The doctor was lost in thought. Well, what? Is he the master? The doctor shook his head. No, I don't believe he is. I can usually detect the presence of another Time Lord, especially if I'm expecting them. But in this instance, no, nothing. No sign of the Master at all. Dr. Derek Drake is as human as you are, Brigadier. Drake sat back in the car seat, 
with a heavy sigh. He looked very tired. The driver of the car, a BBC employee, checked in his rearview mirror as he pulled away from television centre. You all right, sir? He asked. Yes. Yes, I'm fine, muttered Drake. He looked older than the driver had expected. But he'd only ever seen the man a couple of times before on the box. This was the first time he'd seen him in the flesh. He'd always come across as a lively sort on television, good-humoured and clever. He didn't look that way now. In fact, he looked rather withered. They said the TV always added a few pounds, and the driver had found this to be the case on many occasions. He had driven quite a few stars around in his time. Everyone from the goodies to James Burke, in fact, including, on one memorable occasion, Oliver Reed. And every one of them, without exception, had looked smaller and thinner than they did on TV. You look a little peaky, if you ask me, said the driver. But not to worry, I'll have you straight back to your digs in no time. Traffic's light, and I know a few shortcuts. Used to be a cabbie, I've got the knowledge. He tapped the side of his nose and swung the car towards Shepherd's Bush. Good, said Drake quietly, sinking further into the upholstery. Thank you. They put you up somewhere nice, the driver said. They only use the Buckinghamshire for VIPs normally. Not that you're not a VIP, of course, no offence, but the last person I took back to that place was Peter Cushing. Yeah, Count Dracula himself. Do stop prattling like a damned fool, Drake snapped suddenly. Just drive the car. The driver pulled a face and shut up. Takes all sorts, he thought. Amazing how often the nicest people on TV turned out to be the most horrible in real life. Not like Peter Cushing. He'd been a proper gent. The doctor drove out of television centre and headed in the opposite direction to Dr Drake back towards Unit HQ. He hadn't spoken a word since leaving, apparently lost in thought. Bit of a dead end, then, said the Brigadier, struggling to hide his disappointment. It's quite the conundrum, isn't it? The doctor replied, speaking up over the noise of the evening traffic. Are you sure there's no way Dr. Drake could have been the master? None that I can see. He is 100% genuine? Oh, that I can't answer. I was hoping to ask him a few pertinent questions regarding this new energy process of his. He wasn't in the mood. No. No, he didn't look very well at all. The brigadier turned over the events of the day in his mind. He hadn't forgotten that he was looking for a way to keep the doctor on Earth. So the question still remains. How come you thought you saw the master on television? As I said... Quite the conundrum. The brigadier gripped the edge of his seat as the doctor threw Bessie around the Chiswick roundabout. The doctor was concentrating hard. He always liked to drive fast, and the roads were still quite busy. Someone tooted at him as he roared past, clearly irritated by the sight of a vintage roadster overtaking him. I knew a man once, the brigadier said. A friend of mine. Well, colleague. Very successful, very proud. Until he hit middle age. Realised that his best years were behind him. Started chasing after his glory days. Bought a flash sports car. Started listening to the latest pop records. 
Lethbridge Stewart's voice was ripe with disapproval. He even started to fancy his chances with young ladies half his age. The doctor glanced across at his passenger with a smile. I wouldn't worry too much about that, Alistair. Tell your friend that it can happen to anyone. Lethbridge Stewart tutted. Not me, doctor. I'm perfectly happy, thank you very much. But Anno Domini can affect some men in all sorts of ways. All I'm saying is, the mind can play terrible tricks, sometimes. Really, Brigadier, are you implying that I imagine seeing the Master due to some sort of midlife crisis? The Brigadier opened his mouth to reply, but his words were lost beneath the whip-crack noise of a high-velocity bullet whizzing past his head. The sound was quite unmistakable. Someone's firing at us, he exclaimed crouching down as another gunshot cracked the air. Good grief! The doctor tore at the steering wheel, sending Bessie into a zigzagging path to avoid further gunfire. The brigadier twisted around in his seat, scanning for any sign of a sniper. He became aware of the harsh roar of a motorcycle approaching fast from behind. No, two motorcycles. A pair of them, black as night, ridden by men in dark helmets and leather. The nearest was holding a firearm. As the brigadier watched, there was a flash from the muzzle and another bullet raced past. There's two of them, cried the brigadier, as the doctor continued to swerve, threading his way through the traffic. The doctor checked his mirrors and narrowed his eyes. I see them, he announced firmly. All of them. The brigadier checked behind them again, and his heart lurched as he saw another two armed men on motorbikes coming up behind the first pair, four in total, all brandishing guns. It's our hit squad, the brigadier exclaimed in disbelief. They're closing in for the kill. There was a squeal of tyres, and the doctor yelled, Look out, brigadier! The bikes accelerated with a sudden roar, and the air was filled with gunfire. Closing in for the kill! There was a squeal of tyres, and the doctor yelled, Look out, Brigadier! The bikes accelerated with a sudden roar, and the air was filled with gunfire. The motorbike swerved as each rider tried to get into a better position to shoot. Bullets howled through the night air, narrowly missing the doctor and the Brigadier, as Bessie weaved in and out of the traffic. One stray round struck sparks off the old car's offside wheel arch, and the doctor's face turned thunderous. Right, he declared, changing gear with a decisive slash of his hand. That does it. He opened the throttle and Bessie surged forward. If the men on the motorbikes were surprised to see the sprightly yellow roadster pulling away, they didn't show it. All four hunkered down and accelerated after Bessie. Lethbridge Stewart clung onto his seat as the speedometer needle moved inexorably past 70 miles per hour. 80. 90. 
the doctor's face was now a mask of pure concentration. Not without some admiration, Lethbridge Stewart realized that the doctor was enjoying this. They're gaining on us! The brigadier yelled. The doctor smiled grimly and pushed Bessie faster. The night air was filled with the roar of high-performance engines and the crack of gunfire. Grim-faced, the brigadier drew his own service revolver. He refused to go down without a fight. The doctor swung Bessie off the main road and onto a quieter route in an effort to draw the gunman as far away from innocent road users as possible. The motorcycles continued to lean this way and that as they swerved through the traffic. As unaccountably quick as Bessie was, the powerful bikes were proving a match. Two were drawing level with the old car on either side. The riders had their pistols leveled. I can't get a clear shot! The brigadier shouted at the doctor. Good! He yelled back. We'll have to use our wits instead! And with that, he slammed on the brakes and Bessie slewed to a halt with a squeal of burning rubber. The bikes shot past, unable to match the sudden deceleration. One of them lost control as his front tyre struck the pavement curb and the bike flipped over. Throwing its rider clear through a shop window. The other rider snapped his head around to see where the target had gone and skidded into a sliding turn. One boot flat on the tarmac for traction. The doctor gunned Bessie's powerful motor once more. Although this time in reverse, the brigadier was flung forward as Bessie shot backwards at pace. The doctor spun the wheel and executed a perfect reverse handbrake turn. The second pair of gunmen, still approaching from behind, were both forced to swerve to avoid a collision with the front of the old roadster. One rider smashed into a pillar box, and the other came off in a cartwheel of leather-clad arms and legs. His ride jackknifed over a parked car, spinning like a wheel before clattering along the road in a shower of sparks. Only one left, said Lethbridge Stewart, amazed. The last remaining gunman was already racing after them, firing as he came, and Bessie took off once more as the doctor gave full rein to every bit of horsepower under the yellow bonnet. Bullets cut through the night, and Lethbridge Stewart felt them all pass far too close for comfort. The motorbike drew level with him on the passenger side, the engine snarling angrily, and the rider aimed his pistol. For a long moment, the brigadier stared straight down the barrel, but when the trigger was pulled, the gun simply clicked. The hitman tossed the automatic away in disgust, its magazine spent. He's out of bullets, cried the brigadier triumphantly. The doctor checked his mirrors again, not giving up yet. The man had drawn a long baton from his boot and opened the throttle on his bike. He's going to jump, realized the brigadier. Take the wheel, ordered the doctor. And such was the commanding tone in his voice that Lethbridge Stewart found himself instantly obeying, sliding across the front seat to take the doctor's place as he moved out of it. What the devil do you think you're doing? The brigadier roared, grabbing the wheel. Bessie slewed from right to left, very nearly tipping the doctor out as he climbed onto the back seat. But the rider was already clambering onto Bessie from the rear, baton in hand. His bike left to veer off to one side, unmanned, until it smashed into the back of a parked lorry. The man launched himself at the doctor, lashing with his baton. But the doctor was more than ready. He ducked the first swipe, landing a couple of sharp spearhand jabs under his assailant's ribs. The leather jacket bore the brunt, however, and he swung the baton back with a ferocious backhand. The doctor was expecting it. With one deft movement, he parried the blow, twisting the man's arm until he was forced to drop the weapon. For a moment, the doctor saw his own face reflected in the visor of the man's helmet as they grappled. 
balancing on the back of the car as the brigadier fought to keep it on the road. The hitman, fiercely determined, tried to wrap his gloved fingers around the doctor's throat, but the move was a predictable one, and the doctor was ready. He swayed backwards, and the killer grasped thin air, and the doctor thrust his boot straight into the assailant's sternum. The man overbalanced, hanging in the air for a heartbeat, before hitting the tarmac behind Bessie with a crunch, and rolling along in a tangle of limbs. Stop the car, the doctor ordered. The brigadier brought Bessie to a skidding halt. At this speed, it took a fair few yards, and the doctor hopped out, running back to where the man had fallen. But there was no sign of him. Cleared off? asked the brigadier when he caught up, revolver in hand. So it would seem, the doctor said. He rubbed his chin thoughtfully. I wonder what that was all about. I would have thought that was obvious, the brigadier retorted. Someone wants us dead. Oh, absolutely. But who? And what on earth for? In the guest suite of the prestigious Buckinghamshire Hotel, a tall, dark figure stood by the window and stared into the darkness beyond. I gave no order for them to be killed, he said. In the reflection of the glass, his eyes burned with quiet fury. His features were aquiline and rather distinguished, clearly used to command. With a sardonic, downturned mouth and neatly trimmed beard. In any other circumstance, the master would have been very pleased to see the doctor killed. But not this time. He turned away from the window and directed a sharp, murderous look at his companion, who was lurking in the shadows on the far side of the room. How dare you presume to take such action without my authority? The figure bristled in the darkness, almost crackling with annoyance. Your authority, it repeated in a deep, throaty voice laden with menace. The master wasn't to be cowed. Not now. His ally was arrogant and powerful. But this was too much. We agree that I should take charge in this matter, he replied smoothly. I know this world. I know the doctor. You fear him. The master's lips curled in derision. Herod nonsense. I always knew the doctor's interest might be piqued. But I had the matter entirely under control. He suspected nothing. It was too great a risk to take. Drake was perfect, the master argued. We had the doctor fooled, completely fooled. Even face to face, he never suspected a thing. The master's ally boiled angrily. We cannot afford to let him interfere, insisted the bubbling voice. The fact that this doctor came to see Drake was enough reason to take action. We are not playing games. The master sighed. His ally had a terrible temper, and it was best not to antagonize it too much. Softening his tone a little, he said, Hiring those men to kill him will only incite suspicion. I am not prepared to risk this enterprise by involving another duplicitous Time Lord. One of you is more than enough. The master's nostrils flared at the insult, but he said nothing. The humans may be fooled, but the doctor will not be, the figure in the darkness insisted. 
It is better this way. But the master refused to be beaten. I tell you, this will only prompt him to investigate further. You presume that he will survive? Of course he will, scoffed the master. Four armed men against the doctor, they don't stand a chance. He wasn't even alone. He had that idiot soldier with him, too. Why know these people? The master spoke with bitter experience. They are very difficult to get rid of, believe me. His ally seethed with frustration. Then what would you suggest? The master arched an eyebrow. This was more like it. Sensing the opportunity to re-establish control, he chanced to smile. As I said, the doctor's involvement was always a possibility. But I have allowed for that. And I know how he thinks. He'll come to see Drake again. And this time, we shall be ready for him. Or rather, you will. The brigadier and the doctor had returned to Unit HQ. There were some matters to settle with the police, who were not at all impressed to find that a member of the armed forces had been involved in a high-speed chase with armed gunmen across central London. The brigadier was now rather relieved that he hadn't had the opportunity to shoot back, as the paperwork would have tripled. A full but relatively informal debrief took place in the doctor's lab. When Lethbridge Stewart arrived, the doctor was busy showing Mike Yates a bullet hole in his cloak. Gosh, said Yates, peering at the spot where the doctor's finger poked through the silk lining. Any closer and it might have been goodbye, doctor. Indeed, the doctor said. He raised his cloak to his nose and sniffed the bullet hole. Colt M 1911 automatic, unless I'm very much mistaken. They certainly meant business. Any idea who they were? It was the brigadier who answered. None at all, Sergeant. All four of them just disappeared. The police have been searching the area and contacting eyewitnesses, but so far, nothing. Came and went like a summer shower. When you say disappeared, Yates raised an eyebrow. I mean they vacated the area, explained the brigadier. They didn't just appear to be ghosts or time travellers or what have you. Just run-of-the-mill villains. Professionals, though, Yates said. Yes, guns for hire, I imagine. The brigadier agreed. Mercenaries. Hired by whom? Isn't it obvious? Asked the doctor. We'd just been to see Dr. Derek Drake. Yates pulled a face. That sounds a bit of a stretch to me. I can't see Drake involved in anything like this. No, nor can I, for that matter, said the brigadier. Seemed a rather harmless old soul when we met him. You were quite convinced he wasn't the master in disguise. The doctor pursed his lips. Bit of a coincidence, though, wouldn't you say, Brigadier? Coincidences can happen, Lethbridge Stewart replied. He arched an eyebrow. Quite a lot of them, to be honest, when you're involved. I'd still like to know a lot more about the wonderful Dr. Drake. In the hotel, the master was checking and double-checking the arrangements for the next stage of his plan. He hadn't heard anything from the motorcycle gang so things weren't looking promising on that particular front. Perhaps he could take his accomplice's formidable mind off the subject of the Doctor by outlining the schedule once more. Dr Drake will arrive at Greyfield Power Station at ten hundred hours, he said. This is simply a courtesy call to meet with various officials and politicians. I will need access to the nuclear reactors, snarled the creature in the shadows. Not yet. That comes later. 
The master unrolled a detailed schematic plan of the power station on the coffee table. Greyfield has three linked reactors, and crucially, they are all computer-controlled and linked to the other major nuclear power facilities around the country, and the rest of the world. A foolish human strategy. Perhaps, the master conceded. But they mean well. They usually do. It's very wary, but in this case, they think it makes sense to control and consolidate their nuclear power industries. Each one can be isolated in case of emergency. But I will override that failsafe. This planet offends me, gurgled the alien. Its people are stupid and unnecessary. Its plants and animals are all toxic and the air is disgusting. How much longer am I to endure this? I grow impatient. The creature hissed and crackled. Sparks jumped from its undulating form to every nearby metal surface. The master could see it was getting agitated. And that made him nervous. We are very close to success, the master said. The preparations have been meticulous, and the end will come very soon. But the creature was not so easily placated. It never was. Electrical sparks snaked out of its torso like angry tentacles of light. I must feed soon. I can already taste the radiation. I must have it. I must. And you will, the master replied calmly. If we follow the plan, my plan. Your plan involves Drake. I do not like Drake. He is a weakness. He is vital. It is only through Drake that we can gain access. The alien crackled with suppressed fury, and the master sighed. This was why it was imperative that he did all the planning. Ignoring the frustrated noises coming from his companion... The master continued. Drake will meet with the people at the station, the governor, the chief scientists, the administrator and authorities. He will gain their trust, and most importantly, their permission to continue. This will pave the way for the next stage of the plan, which is access to the reactor. Drake is still a risk, warned the creature. We will not need him much longer, said the master. The doctor suspected him. Perhaps, but it won't matter. Drake has a meticulous pedigree. He's world famous and has already met the doctor face to face. I've spent a great deal of time and effort ensuring that Dr. Derek Drake is the perfect man for the job. I feel better when the doctor has been dealt with, said the creature, emitting more sparks and a whiff of carbon dioxide. The master's face darkened. That matter is already in hand. If the doctor comes looking for Drake, you will be waiting for him. In the meantime, we must concentrate on this. He tapped the plans for Greyfield Nuclear Power Station. It's vital that all the stakeholders sign up to Drake's process. That shouldn't be too difficult. We'll have them all in one room with Drake. And our natural powers of persuasion will do the rest. Captain Yates dropped a bulky file onto the workbench by the doctor. The full life story of one Derek Drake, 
born in Yorkshire, 1912, educated in Hull, won a scholarship to Cambridge in 1930, etc., etc. It's all here. Excellent, Mike. Well done. The doctor took the file and leafed quickly through it. Although it all seems rather humdrum, as a matter of fact. Did you just read all that? The brigadier asked, bewildered as the doctor handed over the file. Only the interesting parts, the doctor confessed. The brigadier flicked through the pages. No war record, I see, he noted with suspicion. Never passed the medical, the doctor told him. Caught TB at an early age. Spent the Second World War in a private engineering firm, designing sonar equipment for minesweepers. The brigadier sniffed approvingly. That's all right, then. But what's all this supposed to prove? That Dr Drake is bona fide, said Yates. He couldn't be the master, could he? Everything checks out. Unless the real Dr Drake has been replaced by the master, suggested the brigadier. That's certainly a possibility, admitted the doctor. But the fact remains that when I met the man, he didn't strike me as false in any way. A little tired, perhaps, but then he is quite elderly. He had just done a live television interview. But I looked that man in the eye, shook him by the hand even. There was no indication that it was the master. No, nothing at all. I'm sure I would have known. And yet armed gunmen were sent to kill us. It must be connected. Unless the UFO spotters have simply had enough of you, Doctor, remarked the brigadier dryly. The Greyfield Nuclear Power Station was the pride and joy of Great Britain's atomic energy industry. It was a state-of-the-art research and power facility, harnessing the combined might of three separate but linked nuclear reactors. It covered two square miles in a maze of concrete silos, coolant towers, turbines, pumps and generators. Greyfield employed many scientists and engineers at the very top of their game. Normally, they went about their business in a quiet, methodical manner, befitting the seriousness of their work. But today, there was a buzz of excitement around the power station. All the research physicists and control room staff, not currently on duty, jostled for position among cleaners, caterers and administrators. Everyone wanted to meet today's VIP visitor, Dr. Derek Drake. Drake looked all the better for a good night's rest and was on top form, shaking hands with the governor, his superintendents and chief officers in turn, receiving polite applause and even a few pats on the back from the assembled personnel. Dr. Drake was taken through the busy main entrance hall of the station and ushered towards the governor's private office suite. It took nearly 25 minutes to get there, once all the well-wishers and onlookers had been successfully navigated. Quite the reception, exclaimed the governor, whose name was Kinley, as he closed the door behind them. The noise of the hubbub outside abruptly faded. Remarkable, agreed Dr. Drake. Kinley's office was spacious, fully carpeted, with a wide, ultra-modern desk and comfortable chairs. Long floor-to-ceiling windows looked onto the station car park and fields beyond. The cool winter sunlight shone through neat vertical blinds. You've got quite the following, Dr. Drake, Hindley said. Please take a seat. It's a privilege to have you here, I must say. Oh, not a bit of it, 
said Drake modestly. Greyfield was recommended by the Atomic Energy Authority and the National Nuclear Corporation. It's the leader in its field. Where else would I go? Well, quite, Kinley agreed, sensing a spot on the New Year's Honours list if all of this went well. The Minister and everyone else are already here, of course, but I thought we could have five minutes to ourselves first. That all right? Of course. Kinley licked his lips, feeling unaccountably nervous. I'm uh, quite interested in your process, you see. Process? Yes. The way you plan to solve the energy crisis and pollution. I'm interested in the method. It's almost too good to be true. Drake smiled. That's what they said about antibiotics. Kinley frowned. It is? I mean, they did? Who did? The people with a vested interest in peddling their own crank cures and medicines. The people for whom bacterial infection was a business. Of course, the pharmaceutical industry soon took over production of antibiotics, so they got what they wanted in the end. Money, legitimacy and power. Kinley frowned. He'd never thought of it like that. And, uh, how does that relate to your new clean energy process? I'm not doing this for money or power, Mr. Kinley. I am in it for the good of the human race. And I have the legitimacy. I can solve our energy needs and avoid the prospect of environmental disaster. But I'm not going to make a profit out of it. Drake paused for a moment. Looking past Kinley and out through the office windows at the green fields and blue skies beyond, he took off his glasses and returned his gaze to Kinley who suddenly found that the old man's stare was really rather piercing. For that reason alone, Drake continued solemnly, I must keep the process an absolute secret. I do not want unscrupulous people trying to make money out of it. I will oversee all the arrangements with the permission and goodwill of the relevant authorities. Drake's eyes bored into Kinley's. You do agree with me, don't you? Yes, said Kinley, feeling rather strange, as if Dr. Drake's voice was coming from a long, long way off. Oddly, he heard himself saying, Of course, I agree with you. After all, Dr. Drake had convinced everyone, the people at the Ministry, the people at the Atomic Energy Authority and the National Nuclear Corporation, that his process would work, even though none of them had ever actually seen it in action. Half an hour later, Dr. Drake was at the podium in the Greyfield Nuclear Power Station boardroom, addressing the assembled government officials ministers and business leaders. He was talking in the same solemn, convincing tones, and they were all hanging on his every word. And so, ladies and gentlemen, the old man concluded, the way forward is very clear. Either we pursue the dead-end certainty of fossil fuels and their adherent pollution, or we act responsibly now turning our backs on coal, petrol and oil to face a brighter future. The clean, comforting warmth of worldwide consolidated 
Nuclear power. We can do it. We must do it. The guests met this with enthusiastic applause. Now, said Drake, letting his gaze move across the room like a searchlight. Tension in the air was electric. Every business leader in the room could spot a game-changer when they saw one. And this was it. Who will be the first to demonstrate their environmental credentials by signing up to my new future? One that will change this planet. Forever? There was pandemonium in the boardroom as the businessmen all surged forward, contracts and pens in hand, ready to sign on the dotted line for whatever Drake wanted. Please, please don't rush all at once, Drake pleaded, raising his voices above the excited hubbub. Everyone will get their turn. No one will be left out. Standing to one side of the boardroom, Kinley watched the scene with growing bewilderment. The nearest business manager thrust out a contract towards Drake. Here, I've already signed it. We'll cooperate fully. Drake smiled. That's what I like to hear, he said. Corporal Hanson was already working on Bessie when the doctor found her. Daisy frowned at the bullet marks and scratches on the yellow paintwork. Were you driving the wrong way past the firing range? As a matter of fact, this damage was sustained on the roads of central London, said the doctor. Get away! Uh, don't be too shocked, Corporal, the doctor admonished gently. This is unit after all. Any branch of the military should expect a command of fire at some point. I remember once during the Crimea, when I was... He was interrupted by the arrival of Sergeant Benton. Hello, Doctor, Corporal. Heard you and the brig had a spot of bother last night. You could say that, Sergeant, yes, replied the Doctor. Some rather unfriendly gentleman decided to take pot shots at us on the way home. Wish I could have been there with a couple of squaddies, Benton said. I've been itching for a dust-up for ages. I rather think there were enough bullets flying around Shepherd's Bush last night, Sergeant. Any idea who they were? Hired mercenaries, by all accounts. Do you know who hired them? Wondered Daisy. My money's on Dr. Drake, said Benton, as if he'd already put a fiver on it at the bookies. Didn't like you and the Briggs sniffing around after the interview last night. It's certainly a possibility, replied the doctor. That's why I'm rather keen to have another word with the venerable Dr. Drake. Just came to see if Bessie was ready. I'll have her done in a minute, said Daisy, getting back to work. Although I don't see why Drake would want you out of the way, Doctor. He wants the same thing as you, doesn't he? On the face of it, Corporal, yes, he does. Well, he's at Greyfield Power Station today, Benton said. Big day for him, sorting out the energy crisis and what have you. Free power for everyone and no pollution. I still wonder how he thinks he's going to manage that. The Doctor rubbed the back of his neck, thinking hard. He couldn't resist a mystery. His gaze alighted on his new car, resplendently silver and futuristic, by Earth standards at least, on the far side of the garage. Then his eyes widened. Oh, good grief, of course! The Brigadier and Mike Yates were going through more reports from the slush pile. With a sigh, Lethbridge Stewart closed the file on another possible sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. He got one of those every other week and nothing ever came of it. The truth was that he was itching to investigate Dr. Derek Drake as much as the doctor was. The motorcycle gunman might have been a coincidence, but the brigadier hoped it wasn't. 
He just needed a reason, any reason, to launch an official investigation. I wish Unit had been put in charge of the whole Drake business right from the start, said the brigadier. Then I could get the doctor to check him out officially. Doesn't seem to be much of a threat, though. Yates counted as he picked up another report from the slush pile. By all accounts, Drake's a decent sort with a plan to give us all free energy and clean air. Can't argue with that. The doctor's convinced there's something amiss. But with no concrete evidence, I can't start any kind of investigation. He still thinks he saw the master on television, doesn't he? Yes, the brigadier said gloomily. And I don't mind telling you, that made me very nervous. The master's brought us to the brink more times than I care to think. Yes, sir. I wouldn't like us to have to deal with him without the doctor. The brigadier nodded. We may have to one day. At that moment, the doctor swept in. Good grief, doctor, don't you ever think of knocking first? Asked the brigadier, conscious of all the files piled on his desk. But the doctor wasn't interested in knocking or the slush pile. I see here, brigadier. I've been wondering about Drake's plan for free energy with no pollution. So have we, said the brigadier. Yes, well, it's quite impossible, of course, the doctor announced. The brigadier raised his eyebrows. Is it? Absolutely. Are you sure, doctor? Asked Yates. For this planet in this time period, yes. I'm certain there are many improvements that could be made and should be made, but nothing that could deliver whatever it is that Drake is promising. I think he should still be given a chance, cautioned Yates. At the very least, his heart seems to be in the right place. Yes, does it, Mike? Does it? Be very interested to find out. That's the problem, said the brigadier gloomily. I did ask the minister if Unit could attend the meeting at Greyfield Power Station today. But the answer was a flat no. The government are very keen for Drake's process to be seen as a great British peacetime innovation. And they don't want any military involvement. So it's official, said Yates. We can't go near Greyfield or Drake. That's all right, said the doctor. I'll just have to see him unofficially. Hang on a minute, doctor, said the brigadier warningly. There must be no unit presence at all the doctor said. That's vital. I'll be seeing Dr. Drake in an entirely private capacity, one scientist to another. We can discuss the effects of fossil fuels on the environment and how best to solve the energy crisis. Yates wondered if that really counted as unofficial business. The doctor was unit's scientific advisor after all. Not when I'm off duty, Mike the doctor replied with a cheery smile. And then he swept out of the brigadier's office with the same braggadocio with which he'd entered. I think that's the first time I've ever heard him mention duty, said the brigadier. The doctor went straight to his lab and put in a telephone call to Dr. Drake's hotel, the Buckinghamshire. He wanted to arrange a meeting with the good doctor that evening. Tell him I'd like to apologise for our previous encounter at the television studios yesterday, the doctor told the concierge. Perhaps we could have a chat about energy and the environment. Yes, I'm aware that Dr Drake is a very busy man, but then so am I. Tell him I'll be there at seven o'clock sharp. And tell him it's the doctor, will you? No, no name. Just doctor. Dr Drake had rooms at the Buckinghamshire and the doctor drove straight there in Bessie. 
Corporal Hansen had done a fine job hammering out the dents made by the hitman's bullets and touching up the paintwork with just the right shade of daffodil yellow. The doctor strode straight through the opulent foyer of the Buckinghamshire to the reception desk. He cut a particularly fine figure in a rich, plum-coloured velvet jacket and frilled shirt, complete with a silk-lined Inverness. The receptionist was obviously impressed with such haute couture, judging by how high his eyebrows shot up when he saw the doctor approaching. Good evening, said the doctor. I have an appointment with Dr Drake at seven. The receptionist nodded. Yes, sir, Dr Drake is expecting you. He said you are to go straight up to his private rooms on the seventh floor. Thank you. Thank you very much. The doctor took the lift straight up to the seventh floor. As soon as the doors opened, he knew something was amiss. The corridor was unnaturally quiet. Not the soft absence of noise that went with a calm, relaxed environment. But the cold silence of the grave. There was also a strange odour in the air. The doctor was proud of his nose and trusted it implicitly. He considered his olfactory senses to be as accurate as any scientific instrument. After a couple of inquisitive sniffs, the doctor walked slowly down the corridor until he reached the door to Dr. Drake's suite. It was number 732. The smell was stronger here. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer. When he reached for the door handle, there was a tiny crackle of static. The doctor paused, considering. There was a definite electrical charge in the air. He wondered if it had been a little rash coming here alone after all. He tried knocking again. Dr. Drake! Dr. Drake, it's the doctor! Realising how awkward that sounded, the doctor rattled the door handle and was surprised to find the door opened easily. He wondered why it wasn't locked. The room beyond was in darkness. Hello? He called out. Dr. Drake! The only reply was a faint noise, like an electrical fire heating up. The doctor frowned and moved forward. And then, instantly froze. The noise suddenly increased in volume, and a light flared up on the far side of the room. The doctor flung up his arms to ward off the pulsating glare. As his eyes adjusted to the sudden light, he saw a tall column of luminous slime. At first, he thought it was a kind of ectoplasm. But then, the undulating mass started to slither over the furniture towards him, like a huge, translucent slug. Electrical charges crackled around it, connecting to anything metal with long, flickering tendrils of energy. The smell was stronger than ever, overpowering, like a leaking gas main. The doctor knew both instinctively and empirically that the gas was poisonous. The creature bore down on the doctor and a huge maw gaped open in the middle of the slime to issue a long, noxious blast of deadly gas. Gathering his wits as best he could, the doctor resisted the urge to back away. Good evening, he announced, covering his nose and mouth with his cloak. I was expecting Dr. Drake. The creature boiled towards him 
and the fumes were now overpowered. Of whom do I have the pleasure? Asked the doctor in short gasps. He tracked sideways, determined to keep the slime creature within the room. To his dismay, the thing seemed fully aware of his intention and moved to block the exit anyway. Now, the doctor found himself backed up against a wall, hemmed in between the creature and a sofa. The doctor was now trapped, unable to breathe, and the lightning discharges were creeping ever closer. Sparks drew long, sinuous lines of electricity from every metal surface. A table lamp, a cocktail shaker, the hinges and handles on every piece of furniture. The monster closed in, the gas growing stronger and thicker. Every breath felt like the doctor was sucking in exhaust fumes and his throat burned. Every step was like wading through mud. The doctor waited for just a second longer as the creature drew closer and then dived to the left, straight over the sofa and into a forward roll. He came straight up onto his feet and darted to the door opposite, but this only led to the bathroom where he would be even more trapped. The creature surged across the room again, crackling with energy and spewing gas. The doctor rolled again and sprinted for the door that connected the room to the adjoining suite. He rattled the doorknob, but it wouldn't turn. Locked. No time to pick it either. The doctor whirled, still holding the corner of his cloak over his nose and mouth, fumbling in his pocket with his free hand for his sonic screwdriver. His assailant bubbled triumphantly. Starved of oxygen, the doctor felt himself weakening. He could last a lot longer than a human being without breathing, but there were limits. But there was something else. Something besides the static and the suffocating gas. For some reason, he couldn't recall how to use the sonic screwdriver, which was ridiculous. He struggled to remember, but there was something in his mind, like a great telepathic weight bearing down on his strength and will. Slowly, the doctor sank to the floor, unable to resist any longer. The sonic screwdriver slipped from his nerveless fingers. Through heavy, hooded eyes, he stared up at the monster as it rose above him, pulsating with murderous intent. He was fascinated, even in this enfeebled state to find that he could see through the organism. It was perfectly translucent, like a thin jelly. And through it, he saw the door to the corridor outside crash open beneath the weight of a large, hobnailed army boot. Unit soldiers flooded into the room and opened fire at the creature. No, wait! gasped the doctor, but it was too late. A hail of automatic gunfire tore into the creature. The doctor rolled behind the sofa as bullets strafed the cushions. The creature gave an oily snarl and turned on the soldiers. It was Sergeant Benton at the head of the squad. He crouched over his Sterling submachine gun and let rip at the creature again. Two troopers on either side of him did the same. The bullets smacked into the slime and spat out the other side, gouging splinters from the wall and smashing the glass of the window behind Cease fire, roared Benton. The guns fell silent. The creature reared back. Sparks glittering between the spent rounds and empty shells littered around him. Then, with a gaseous roar, 
It slithered across the room at speed, heading for the broken window. With barely a pause, it oozed through the jagged opening until the last of it disappeared with a slurp and a crackle of static electricity. The room was silent. What the blooming heck is that stink? demanded one of the soldiers, wafting the air in front of his nose with one hand. Don't look at me, said another. Benton was kneeling by the doctor, who was gasping for air. Never mind all that. Get the medic here. Double quick, he ordered. I'm perfectly... All right, thank you, Sergeant, wheezed the doctor. Where... where did that creature go? Straight out the window. Benton turned to his squad. Get after that thing. Don't engage unless you have to. Just call it in when you find it. Sarge, the soldier said, and ran out. Boots thundering on the hotel carpet. What? What are you doing here, Sergeant? Asked the doctor, as he climbed slowly to his feet. Saving your bacon by the looks of it. Brigadier's orders. The doctor smiled weakly. Good old Lethbridge, Stuart. When in doubt, send in a platoon, all guns blazing. In another part of London, a gleaming black limousine slid quietly along the Bayswater Road. In the back of the car sat the master, dressed in a brand new slate grey Savile Row suit and tie. He was enjoying life for the first time in a long time. Soon, the doctor would be dead if he wasn't already. It was galling not to witness it in person, but if there was one thing the master had learned over time, it was that you can't have everything. Well, not straight away. It would have been an undeniable pleasure to watch the doctor die, and an even greater one to be the cause of it but drastic times called for drastic measures. That hopeless attempt to assassinate the Doctor using mere humans armed with automatic weapons. The Master shook his head in despair. His partner just didn't understand. It had been doomed to failure. He might as well have used Ogrons. No, the Doctor was altogether too wily, too cunning, too lucky for that kind of heavy-handed approach. His ally would discover that soon enough, the Master thought. He already knew to his cost that getting rid of the Doctor was infuriatingly difficult. There was very little room for error. His ally would soon learn, and hopefully he wouldn't make any errors at all. The Doctor would die, and the plan could proceed unhindered. Of course, it was possible that the creature would fail. It was possible that the Doctor might find a way to destroy it. The Doctor was very resourceful when it came to dealing with threats to his life, with a survival instinct that the Master couldn't help but admire. And if that did happen, well, the Master was never one to dwell on mistakes. There was more than one way to dominate a planet. Besides, it felt good to be free of the creature, even for a short while, it taxed his mind and rather wore him out, if he was honest. The car phone trilled, and the master picked up the receiver from the armrest. Yes? Hello, is that Dr. Drake? Said the voice on the other end. The master's lip curled. These pathetic humans. 
and their antiquated methods of communication. How irritatingly primitive they were. He sometimes wondered how the Doctor coped. Stuck on this dreary planet, in this backward time period. Dr. Drake is not available at the moment, the Master replied smoothly. I am his associate, however. What can I do for you? It's about the interview with Dr. Drake on Thursday for News Brief. Ah, yes. The Master adopted a conciliatory tone. I am afraid Dr. Drake may not be available on Thursday. He is a very busy man, as I'm sure you understand. Perhaps another night. The caller didn't sound sure. Well, next week? It would mean having to reschedule. Then that is settled, the Master said. Next week it is. Thank you for being so very helpful. Dr. Drake will be delighted, I'm sure. Wait a minute, said the caller. Goodbye, said the Master, and put the phone back in its box. Fool. There would be no interview. Not tomorrow, the day after, or next week. There wouldn't even be any Dr. Drake by then. The Master allowed himself a wicked smile. Oh, he had been clever. This time next week, he would be the master of the entire planet. All that remained was the Doctor. And he, too, would be a thing of the past. And if, by some freakish but not unusual stroke of luck, the Doctor did manage to survive, then... Well, you can't have everything. Not straight away. The limousine was taking the master to the rendezvous point, and he would find out then whether or not celebrations were in order. In the meantime, there was little the master could do other than wait. Just because you might not be able to have everything, there was no reason why you couldn't have some things. The best things. The brigadier arrived at the Buckinghamshire and went straight up to the scene of the battle. That's certainly what it looked like. The walls were riddled with bullet holes, and there was the distinct, exciting whiff of cordite in the air. And something else, too, he thought, as his nose twitched. A distinctly unpleasant odour, quite unlike anything Lethbridge Stewart had experienced before. Captain Yates was already on the scene, talking to the doctor. Ah, Lethbridge Stewart, said the doctor. About time. There really isn't a moment to lose. Now, hang on just a minute, Doctor, warned the brigadier. What the devil's been going on here? Captain Yates said something about a monster made from slime. Yes, that's right, the Doctor nodded. Some sort of polymorphic amoeboid, by the look of it. About ten feet high, translucent and intelligent. Alien, is it? the brigadier asked. The Doctor gave him a withering look. Well, unless it's native to this part of Kensington, then I would say yes, it's alien. So, where is it now? Goodness knows, said the Doctor. Went out of the window when your men crashed in and opened fire. Think nothing of it, Doctor, said the Brigadier archly. Sergeant Benson's leading a search patrol now, sir, Yates said. He doesn't think it will have gone far. That's where he's very much mistaken, the Doctor said. That creature, whatever it is, won't be easy to find now. A ten-foot column of luminous slime, said the Brigadier. There can't be too many of those around, even in Kensington. Perhaps, the doctor conceded. But think about it. That life form was waiting here for me. How do you think it got into the hotel without being spotted by anyone? I know it's a very discreet establishment. That's going a bit far, wouldn't you say? 
At that moment, Sergeant Benton entered the room. He looked flushed and slightly out of breath. But he stood to attention the moment he saw the brigadier. Sir, we've searched all the surrounding areas, but there's no sign of the monster anywhere, sir. Monster, Sergeant Benton? queried the doctor. A creature, sir. Benton corrected himself quickly. Sorry, but whatever it was, it's gone. Disappeared into thin air. Very well, Benton, said Yates. Round up the men and report back to HQ. He turned to the brigadier. I'll organise a clean-up detail to see to the hotel, sir. If that's all right. Very good, Yates. Carry on. Yates saluted and turned to leave with Benton. As soon as they had left, the doctor sat down on the edge of the wrecked sofa with a grateful sigh. I say, doctor, are you feeling quite all right? The brigadier asked. He was intrigued to note that the doctor had waited for the men to leave before showing any ill effects and felt an unusual surge of empathy. I'm just a bit tired, the doctor confessed. My encounter with that creature rather took it out of me, I'm afraid. Tried to kill me by emitting poison gas. Poison gas? The brigadier sniffed. I thought I could detect something. Yes, our old friend carbon dioxide, the doctor said. Among some other noxious fumes in the Praxis range, if I'm not very much mistaken. And that gives me an idea how to identify it. But I'll need the TARDIS for that. The TARDIS? The brigadier felt a pang of worry. Yes, I'll need to check the TARDIS databank. The doctor seemed to sense the brigadier's unease and smiled. Don't worry, Alistair. I'm not going anywhere. Yet. Very glad to hear it, the brigadier replied, trying his best to appear unconcerned. He thought for a moment, thinking that perhaps he should show a little concern. We've rather got used to having you around the place. You made me sound like an old pet dog. I don't mean that. Lethbridge Stewart took a deep breath. Look, Doctor, what I'm really trying to say is... Oh, now, just a minute, old chap, the doctor said, standing up. Before your stiff upper lip does the unthinkable, it would be a very good idea for us both to have a strong cup of tea, don't you think? Couldn't agree more, said the brigadier tersely, and led the way out. The master's limousine drew up outside a large, dilapidated building that couldn't have been more different to the luxurious Buckinghamshire Hotel. This the place, Governor? asked the driver. I'm very much afraid it is, admitted the master. It was dark, and there was rain speckling the car window. But he recognised the old warehouse easily enough. The memory brought an involuntary shudder, which the master quickly suppressed. It wouldn't do to show fear. The driver peered through the windscreen. Dodgy-looking place, if you ask me. I didn't, the master replied. He opened the door. Will I wait here for you, sir, or... The master paused, considering. He would probably still need the driver later this evening, and perhaps tomorrow as well. At some point, he would have to be killed, but not yet. Yes, he said eventually. Wait here. Right you are, Governor. The driver responded cheerily, settling down in the leather seat. If he was at all curious as to why his passenger had wanted to come here, he knew better than to show it. 
The master closed the limousine door and walked across the street to the warehouse, pulling on a dark wool and cashmere overcoat. It was getting decidedly chilly. He opened the door on its rusted hinges and went inside. Everything was in darkness, exactly as it had been on that night several months ago, when the master had last visited. The orange glare of the street lamp outside was reflected in a thousand pieces of broken glass at his feet. The weeds that sprouted through the cracks in the broken cement were unchanged, twisted, pallid things that struggled vainly for wretched life. Rats scurried away as he walked across the warehouse. The master disliked rats intensely. They shared far too many characteristics with human beings. For one thing, both were mammals who gave birth to living young. Both were warm-blooded, shared similar dietary tolerances and diseases. Whatever you found humans, you found rats, and vice versa. The master picked his way across the expanse of the warehouse floor until he reached the deeper moon shadows on the far side. His ally was waiting for him there, emerging from the gloom. An amoeboid nightmare, the scabus oozed across the concrete and then grew into a pulsating, glowing column. You tricked me. The creature snarled in a voice like a plug hole swallowing custard. The master raised his eyebrows, somewhat taken aback. I can assure you I did no such thing. You left me there, knowing that he would come, continued the creature. I thought that was the plan, said the master equably. Your attempt to have the doctor removed by human agents had failed. This was far more likely to succeed, wasn't it? We were both supposed to be there, the creature insisted angrily. A faint whiff of toxic gas caused the master to fan the air gently in front of his face. He tried to appear nonchalant, but this was not a good situation to be in. I thought you would overcome him easily, he said innocently. My being there might have just complicated matters. But there were more humans with projectile weapons. Bullets cannot harm you, the master sneered. It would be like shooting jelly. There were too many for me to overcome at once, replied the scabbers. I was forced to leave before the job was done. Oh dear, said the master. So the doctor still lives. Well, that is a shame. At Unit HQ... The doctor was enjoying one of Sergeant Benton's infamously strong mugs of army tea. Feeling any better, doctor? The sergeant asked. Much better, thank you, sergeant. The doctor sipped his brew and gave a little wince. Although I could do with a little more sugar. You've had every lump we had left, Benton said. Not to worry. The tea itself has uniquely restorative powers, you know. Did I ever tell you about the time I met Clive of India? Terrible business. But he did enjoy... All right, Doctor, enough of the reminiscences, said the Brigadier. We need to concentrate on the here and now. This slime creature that attacked you, what was it and what's its connection with Dr. Derek Drake? 
And how did it get away from us? Benton wanted to know. His professional pride had been hurt. My lads were all over Kensington in minutes. There's no way they could have missed a great big blob like that. What about the sewers? suggested the brigadier. I don't think so. The doctor rubbed his chin thoughtfully. That wouldn't explain how it got into the hotel room in the first place. No. In this instance, I suspect good old-fashioned teletransportation, brigadier. Tele what? said Benton. Teletransportation. Or teleportation. It has a variety of names, but all comes down to the same thing. The ability to move instantaneously from one place to another. Sometimes over incredible distances. You mean old Slimey could have just vanished from the Buckinghamshire and popped up somewhere else a hundred miles away? So we have no way of telling where it's gone, asked the brigadier. No, but if it's any consolation. Natural teleporters don't usually go far. They need some kind of matter transmission technology to manage great distances. The doctor moved over to the map of Great Britain, pinned to the lab wall, and jabbed a long finger at London. It'll be here somewhere, Brigadier. That's not really much use unless we can pinpoint it, said Yates. And we still don't know exactly what it is or what it's here for. Well, I'll need to check. But we do know quite a bit about it, said the Doctor. Amoeboid, teleportation, hard electrical field, carbon dioxide emission. These are all perfectly good clues as to what kind of life form it could be. Not to mention the strong telepathic field that surrounded it. Telepathic? The doctor nodded solemnly, recalling his experience in the hotel. Yes, I detected an incredible mental power. It was almost overwhelmingly powerful at close range. That could explain how Dr. Drake is involved, said Mike Yates. This thing is using him, holding Drake hostage, controlling him, or forcing him to act against his will. But Derek Drake has devoted his life to environmental causes, an energy conservation, said the doctor. I don't think the creature would have to force him very hard, do you? You mentioned carbon dioxide, the brigadier reminded him. If this thing can emit the stuff, maybe it can absorb it too. One assumes it must get it from somewhere. The doctor gave the brigadier a shrewdly appraising stare. My dear Lethbridge Stewart, we'll make a first-class scientist of you yet. The brigadier winced. It just occurred to me that Drake could be using the creature, rather than the other way around. The doctor began to pace around the lab, thinking furiously. Yes, that might make some sense. Perhaps the creature is part of Drake's mysterious new process. But I don't see how. And I can't see someone like Drake being able to control a life form like... Wait a minute. The doctor snapped his fingers loudly. Eureka! That's it! Uh, what is? asked the brigadier. The master. He's the only one who would bring an alien being like that to the earth and try to control it. Try? Well, that's just it, brigadier, the doctor said somberly. That creature has an incredibly powerful mental presence. Combined with the poison gas, it very nearly killed me. It could do the same to the master. You mean he wouldn't be able to control it? asked Yates. Worse than that, Mike. I think he could be in considerable danger. In fact, we all could. Do you see this place? Asked the creature. 
tendrils of electrical energy flickering to a particular spot on the ground. The master looked down at his feet. Yes, yes, I do. This is the place where we first met. An auspicious occasion, he added diplomatically. For whom? asked Scabus. You, or the human being who stood in that same place before you? The master frowned. What human being? Oh, oh, that one. The homeless person. Homeless, echoed the creature, as if testing the word out loud. Yes, a vagrant, a tramp. No one important. I know what it is to be homeless, the creature said. To wander alone through the cold emptiness of interstellar space. I think that fellow had wandered in from Rickmansworth, said the master. But I take your point. Do you? The scabbard moved towards the master with a gurgling hiss. Do you really? Have you ever been homeless? Well... The master shrugged, avoiding the question. It's not something to which I've given much thought. I killed the human who stood where you are now, said the creature. I could kill you just as easily. The master gave the scabbers a baleful look. Do not threaten me. You wouldn't even be here without my intervention. Remember our arrangement. Our arrangement, the creature repeated. And it was hard not to notice the sneering contempt in its slippery tone. The master decided to press home what little advantage he had. Yes, and it will only work if you follow my instructions, my orders. You must obey me. Obey you. The alien snarled. I could kill you with a single thought. It's a pity you didn't kill the doctor with a single thought. The scabbers surged forward, hissing angrily, filling the air with noxious fumes. The master averted his face, trying not to breathe, aware that he might have pushed this unpredictable life form too far. Guarding his own thoughts and motives in the company of this being was already proving irksome. Now, its incessant mental probing was starting to fatigue him. I... I apologize, he said hastily. He affected a suitably contrite tone. I know it isn't easy to destroy the Doctor. I have tried many times myself, believe me. But we must be prepared. Will he know what we are planning? He's no fool. He has a reasonable intellect. But he will be no match for us, for our combined power. The master took a deep breath, hoping not to inhale too much of the toxic gas. We are, after all, allies. Equal partners in a venture that will soon have this entire planet crawling at our feet. Equal partners, but with one master. Do not presume mastery over me, the creature warned. 
My mental powers far exceed your own. The master felt a sudden, inexorable grip on his mind, as if something had reached right inside his head and squeezed. Caught by surprise, the master staggered and fell to his knees in mental anguish. He frantically summoned his own telepathic defences. Release me, he ordered fiercely. I am the master, and you will obey me. But the creature's will was overpowering, and its glutinous voice seemed to reverberate inside the master's head. You would make a better slave than a master. The Doctor felt more at home in the TARDIS than practically anywhere else in the universe. In many respects, this large, brilliantly lit control room was his home. He could happily spend hours fiddling with the large hexagonal console, moving from one control panel to the next, checking the sensitive instruments, turning dials and flicking switches. One day, old girl, one day, the Doctor said quietly, giving the console a gentle pat. The TARDIS was being incredibly patient, sitting idle in the corner of the unit lab like this. One day soon we'll be off, anywhere you fancy. Although we'll give Metabilis three a very wide berth, I think. First, I have to do this. The doctor moved around the console to the databank, feeding in all the information he had on the alien creature. Perhaps there was something in the TARDIS memory banks. Some long-forgotten piece of Time Lord research that might help fill in the blanks. He was sure the creature wasn't from any planet he'd visited before. That there were a thousand million places and eras he hadn't visited yet. All the more reason, he thought, to get this business on Earth settled and be on his way. A light on the control console suddenly began to flash. An urgent signal from a panel that the Doctor very rarely used the TARDIS's mysterious telepathic circuits. The Doctor stared at the flashing light for several seconds, feeling a strange sense of unease. Gingerly, he reached a hand out to the panel and touched one of the sensors, closing his eyes as he allowed the ship to communicate directly with his mind. A strange sensation flooded through him, as if he was in someone else's mind. He felt something cold, as if he was drowning unable to breathe or move beneath a vast, all-encompassing weight. A thick, tarry voice filled his head. You would make a better slave than a master. I will not be your slave. The master felt weaker than he had ever done in his life. The creature's alien will bore down on him like an existential weight. He knew instinctively 
that if he opened his mind fully, or if the Scabus was to somehow break through the last of his mental barriers, he would be overwhelmed. The deathly memory of that cold, empty interstellar space through which this alien being had wandered for so long would flood into the Master's consciousness and destroy his mind. We must work together, the Master insisted. You must work with me. With you, the Scabus agreed. Not for you. Of course, the Master said quickly. The immense pressure in his head immediately lessened. Still feeling sick and weak, the Master pressed on. You need me. We still need Dr. Drake. Without him, none of this will work. The pressure continued to ease off. The Master pressed the fingers of one hand to his brow, still on his knees. And the Doctor? asked the creature. The Master's eyes burned darkly as he regained his composure. His confidence began to return as he thought about the Doctor. Well, I have an idea how he may yet be of use to us. Instinctively, the Doctor knew what was happening. The TARDIS had connected his own mind with that of the Master. Could it be that the Master was trying to contact him? Or could the TARDIS automatically detect the thoughts of another Time Lord in acute distress? The Doctor's lips had moved unconsciously in time with the Master's. I am not your slave. I will not be your slave. And then suddenly, the connection was broken. No Master, no creature. It was as if something had just turned the signal off, like a television set. The doctor became aware of a knocking sound. Someone outside, banging on the TARDIS door. Whoever it was had distracted him, severing the delicate telepathic connection. The doctor went back to the console and tried the telepathic circuits again. But there was another knock at the door. He had left the big double portals open, and someone outside wanted his attention. Hello, doctor? Are you in there, sir? The doctor recognized that voice immediately. Corporal Hanson. He felt a flash of annoyance at having been interrupted, but he knew it wasn't Hanson's fault. So he forced himself to sound as normal and cheery as possible. Hang on a minute. I'll be out in a moment. The doctor tried the telepathic circuits again, but there was nothing there. He had lost contact with the master completely. There was no way of knowing what that could mean, except for the fact that the master was in as much danger from this alien creature as the rest of the Earth. He simply had to find out exactly what it was and how to defeat it. The doctor finished his work at the databank controls as quickly as he could, and a spool of ticker tape emerged. The steady chatter of the printer was rather comforting. The TARDIS sometimes offered these quaint devices for use, as if it became more and more attuned to the world around it. Rather like me, the doctor thought ruefully. Daisy jerked back from the open police box door as the doctor emerged, clutching a length of computer printout. What on earth the old boy could be doing in that box, she had no idea. Maybe he kept a minibar in there, she thought. Didn't mean to disturb you, doctor, Daisy said hurriedly. I've been trying to refit that 
polytronic converter thing in your new car, but I can't fathom which way around it goes. It doesn't go anywhere around, the doctor replied. It's held in a quasi-temporal suspension field. But don't worry about that. I'll have to fix it later. We've got something else to think about first. He collected a stone-cold cup of tea from the workbench and took an appreciative sip while he read the TARDIS computer printout. His expression immediately darkened. Oh, good grief. Oh, no. We can't be having that. Can't be having what, Doctor? asked the brigadier as he entered the lab with Captain Yates in tow. He nodded at Daisy. That is, Corporal. The doctor showed them the TARDIS printout, which was covered in what appeared to be algebraic equations. This, he announced. I've managed to trace the origin of that creature that attacked me in the hotel. The brigadier raised an inquiring eyebrow. And? Well, come on, doctor, we haven't got all day. It's from the planet Alpha Scarby, replied the doctor. Quite an interesting planet, actually. Or it was once, a long time ago, almost entirely volcanic, with an atmosphere of thick, toxic gas, which... Never mind the geological report, Doctor, said the Brigadier. What do we call it, and what's it doing here? Well, it's more commonly known as a scabbus amoeboid. Like any unicellular organism, it has the ability to change its shape. But in the case of the scabbus, it can also alter the perceptions of its prey, to appear as something completely benign. I told you it was telepathic. I'm sorry, said the brigadier. Just explain that to me one more time, would you? It's a giant alien amoeba that uses telepathy to trick you into thinking it's something harmless, the doctor explained. Such as a nice old man who wants to solve the world's energy crisis. Dr. Drake, Lethbridge Stewart looked astounded. Yates was equally alarmed. Surely not. He's as human as you or me. Well, the brigadier and me, at least. That's what you said, Doctor, when you met him. I know. But the scabbus is a very cunning predator. Its disguise is almost perfect, because it has a natural ability to change its shape and influence the perceptions of its prey. Prey? echoed the brigadier. You mean us? The entire human race, brigadier, said the Doctor. Why else would it appear on national television at every opportunity? It wants to reach as many people as possible. But what's its plan? wondered Yates. It can't be planning to eat us all, surely. Human beings aren't on the menu, Mike. It consumes something else entirely. Something you've already mentioned, Brigadier. Carbon dioxide, realised Lethbridge Stewart, feeling rather clever. Exactly. But surely that's a good thing, said Yates. If it just consumes carbon dioxide, then that's fine. Is it, Mike? wondered the doctor. Well, that's just what we need to solve our pollution problem, isn't it? It does sound rather wonderful, doesn't it? The doctor smiled. An alien being that wants to solve Earth's man-made environmental problems. Too good to be true, I'd say, the brigadier murmured. Reminds me of that business with Breathe Industries. The doctor nodded. It's a rather worrying notion, particularly when you remember that this so-called solution involves Greyfield Nuclear Power Station and the Master. The Master, yes. I was wondering when we'd get to him. How does he fit into all this? The Doctor thought back to his experience in the TARDIS, 
at the brief mental glimpse of the master suffering under an immense telepathic onslaught from the creature. He really didn't want to mention it to the brigadier, though. Lethbridge Stewart would regard any telepathic contact with the master with great suspicion. It was easier to say nothing at this point, apart from what he'd already worked out for himself. At a guess, I'd say the master was lending his hypnotic skills to the scabbers, the doctor said, helping it fool everyone here on Earth. The master knows human beings very well, remember, especially their weaknesses. I dare say it was him who brought the creature here in the first place. He's tried that tack before, Yates commented. Yes, Mike, the doctor agreed. But in this case, I think he might have bitten off more than he can chew. The creature is incredibly powerful. Perhaps too powerful for even the master to control. The brigadier decided to cut straight to the chase, as usual. So how do we stop this thing, doctor? That's a very good question, brigadier. Its telepathic perception field didn't seem to work so well on me, at least not over a long distance. When I first saw Drake on television, I saw the master, if you recall. So? I'm starting to wonder why. The doctor rubbed his chin thoughtfully. Perhaps it was deliberate. Meaning what, exactly? That the master knew he couldn't really control the scabbers and wanted my help. Ah, well, that's ridiculous, said the brigadier. Since when has the master asked for your help? What with, for goodness sake? Ruling the world? I still don't get it, Yates said. Drake's promising an end to pollution with clean, renewable energy, with or without the master. What's the harm in that? None whatsoever, Mike replied the doctor. And that's what worries me. At the main gate of Unit HQ, there was a barrier and two armed sentries. They didn't get many visitors, and no one was allowed through to the main site without authorization. Corporal Sweetman saw the car before he heard it. A big flash limo with a really quiet engine. It cruised along the road leading up to the main entrance at a leisurely pace and drew to a purring halt at the gate. Who's this, then? wondered Private Gibbs, eyeing the vehicle suspiciously as he emerged from the sentry hut. Visit from the PM? Corporal Sweetman shrugged. Dunno. Nothing on the visitors' list, if it is. Gibbs walked across to the limousine as the driver's window wound down. Can I help you, sir? The driver said, VIP visits are for your boss, mate. Gibbs peered at the passenger in the back of the limo and recognised him immediately. Dr Drake, isn't it? That's right, said the driver. Sweetman checked his clipboard. Name's not on the list. Give your boss a shout, the driver said. Tell him Dr Drake's here. He'll want to see him. Will he now? Said Sweetman dubiously. Apparently... Hang on, said Gibbs. He knew Dr. Drake was a big fish and it was definitely worth checking with his superiors before trying to turn the car away. I'll call it in. Sergeant Benton found the Brigadier, Captain Yates and the Doctor in the unit lab with Corporal Hanson. Sir, Benton said, saluting. Just had a call from the main gate. They say there's a visitor asking to see you. It's Dr. Drake, sir. Drake? The brigadier repeated disbelievingly. The doctor looked up sharply at the name. Here? The duty officer says he's not expected, sir, but wanted to know what to do with him. 
Send him straight up. Now, the doctor said. Is that wise, doctor? asked the brigadier. I mean, if he really is this slime creature of yours. Exactly, the doctor insisted. I don't want him antagonized at the main gate. Your soldiers won't be able to deal with him. Will you? I very much doubt that Dr. Drake, or rather the Scabus, will want to attack me here, Brigadier. I'm very interested to know exactly what he is doing here, and the best way to find that out is to ask him. The Brigadier turned to Benton. Have him brought straight to the lab, under guard, but tell the men to be discreet. Mike Yates had already drawn his service automatic. What's the plan, Doctor? Well, you can start by putting that thing away, said the Doctor tersely. He's hardly going to want to talk with everyone pointing guns at him. Bullets didn't seem to have much effect in the hotel, sir, Benton added. What a surprise, muttered the brigadier. Reluctantly, Yates holstered the gun. Even so, I'd like to be prepared. Do you think you could rig up some kind of sub-etheric feedback loop using reversed polarity perception dampness? Asked the doctor, stroking his chin thoughtfully. No, no, I thought not. But don't worry, there isn't time. It would take at least three hours just to tune the beam emitters. And by my reckoning, Dr. Drake should be here any moment. Now! The doors to the lab swung open, and Corporal Sweetman marched in, halted, and saluted the brigadier. Sir, Dr. Drake for you, sir. Dr. Drake walked into the lab, a small, slightly rumpled figure with his wispy white hair and beard, and his watery blue eyes. He spotted the doctor and smiled warmly. We've met before, of course, the old man said. At BBC Television Centre, wasn't it? Yes, said the doctor. And again at the Buckinghamshire Hotel. I'm sorry? Room 732, if I'm not very much mistaken. A hard look came into Drake's eyes. Ah, well... This is the doctor, the brigadier interjected, feeling he ought to establish some kind of formal authority here. I'm Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and this is Captain Yates, Sergeant Benton, and Corporal Hanson. Delighted to meet you, said Drake mildly, and offered his hand to the brigadier. Don't touch him, brigadier, the doctor ordered loudly. The brigadier froze. His hand was inches from Drake's fingers. A tiny spark of static electricity arced between them with a sharp crack, and the brigadier snatched back his hand with a grunt of pain. Mike Yates' own hand went instinctively to his gun, and both Benton and Daisy Hansen took a step forward, ready to intervene. No one threatened Alistair Gordon Lethbridge-Stewart on their watch and got away with it. At ease, gentlemen, said the doctor softly. Dr. Drake was still standing with his hand outstretched towards the brigadier, still with the same mild expression on his face. I don't mean you any harm, he said. I come in peace. All the way from the planet Alpha Scarby, said the doctor. Drake turned to him, still smiling. Why, yes. How clever you are, doctor. Your reputation precedes you. I have indeed travelled immense distances through time and space to be with you today. I would like to offer an explanation as to what I am doing here on Earth. I'd be very interested to hear it. My planet, which you term Alpha Scarby, 
but we know as Ascendus, is no longer habitable. I'm very sorry to hear that, said the Doctor. What happened? My race depend on carbon dioxide and many other gases that you find toxic to survive. But visitors from a more technologically advanced world deliberately changed our atmosphere to suit their own needs, turning it into a carbon-based oxygen-rich jungle. This was a death sentence for me and my kind. We were forced to leave Ascendus and travel the interstellar wastes looking for a new home. Earth, you mean? suggested the brigadier, his expression grim. I'm very sorry, but it's already taken. By us. It is a very beautiful planet, said Drake, from your point of view. But soon it will not be. At the current rate of pollution, I estimate that your world has less than fifty years to survive in its current form. The brigadier looked at the doctor, who was nodding solemnly. Fifty years? Unless the human race finds a way to manage its resources effectively and stops relying on fossil fuels, then it's a distinct possibility, agreed the doctor. Ha! So you're here to save us from this fate, I take it. That is indeed my most fervent wish, Drake said, and I can do it. I can absorb the harmful chemicals and gases in your atmosphere and convert it into clean energy. But I will need the help of Greyfield Nuclear Power Station. Doctor? The doctor looked thoughtful. It's a nice idea. And knowing what we do now about our friend here, it's certainly feasible. But? The doctor looked at Drake. I can't help wondering why I was attacked at the hotel. We could have had this conversation then, couldn't we? Drake pursed his lips, but said nothing. The problem is I didn't meet Dr. Drake then, did I? The doctor continued. I met the scabbers. The brigadier frowned. Are you trying to tell me that this is the real Dr. Drake? There is no real Dr. Drake, said the doctor bluntly. He's a complete invention. We only see him like this because of an exceptionally powerful and sophisticated telepathic field. Remember? Generated by the scabbers but controlled by someone else entirely. Dr. Drake stood a little straighter, and his eyes became a little harder. Oh, how very clever you are, Doctor. You never disappoint me. As they watched, Dr. Drake's features seemed to melt, turning into a flowing, gluey stream that ran off another different face beneath. A face that everyone in the room knew only too well, dark-eyed, fiercely aquiline, with a sardonic mouth framed by a neat iron-grey beard. It was the Master. The Master smiled triumphantly. Don't tell me you're surprised to see me, he said. Not at all, said the Doctor calmly. I knew it would be you the moment you turned up here. You and your new friend, I mean. Next to the master, a column of luminous slime grew up from the mass that had previously covered him from head to foot, crackling with electricity. The unit officers had already drawn their firearms, but the master raised his own hand, which held a strange, tubular device. 
I wouldn't open fire if I were you, Brigadier. He snapped. Your weapons will have no effect on the scabbers, and I am also armed. Daisy was positioned to the left of the master, just out of his eyeline. She had already noticed that the master's attention was fixed completely on the doctor, the brigadier, and Captain Yates. Sergeant Benton was by the door, but he didn't have a clear line of fire because the brigadier was in the way. Daisy did have a clear line of fire, but she wasn't carrying a weapon. She could, however, approach the master without being seen. Daisy took a small, slow step forward. If one of you makes the slightest move, I shall be forced to act, said the master. His burning gaze never left the doctor. The doctor, for his part, could see Daisy moving stealthily towards the master. He desperately wanted her to stop. But he dare not make even the slightest signal, because the master would spot it straight away, and there was no telling how he might react. Daisy took another step. I'm so very glad we all understand one another, the master was saying. Another step. The doctor was frozen to the spot. He couldn't even try to catch Daisy's eye. The master would see it and realize what was happening immediately. Daisy had no idea what she was dealing with. Surely she could see that the brigadier, Yates and Benton, were all standing as still as statues. They knew the danger. Daisy took one more step, and her army boot made the tiniest noise on the floor of the lab. In the heightened tension of the lab, it sounded to the doctor like a thunderclap. Just for a second, he thought the master had missed it that perhaps he hadn't been able to hear it over the soft background crackling of the scabbers. But he was wrong. As Daisy took her next step, the one that would put her close enough to strike, the master turned, aimed his weapon, and fired. There was a brief, actinic flash, and Daisy Hanson, in the speed of a second, shrank to the size of a doll. Her tiny, lifeless form landed on the floor a final heartbeat later the master didn't even stop to watch he instantly swung the weapon back to cover the doctor and the brigadier you absolute fiend spat yates atomic compression explained the master a rather effective way to eliminate the opposition i did warn you the doctor looked sadly the Corporal Hansen's diminutive remains. What a terrible waste. When he turned back to the master, his face was a mask of quiet fury. You'll pay for that one day. Really? The master raised an eyebrow. Threats don't suit you, Doctor. I suggest you leave them to the experts. What is it you want? Asked the brigadier tersely. I assume you're here to discuss terms. I hardly think you're authorised to negotiate on behalf of the entire human race, Lethbridge Stewart, sneered the master. You'd be surprised, was the stony response. Brigadier's gaze was unflinching. But the truth of the matter is, we don't negotiate with the likes of you. The master's not here to negotiate, said the doctor. He's here to ask for help, aren't you? Help, scoffed the master. From you, doctor, don't be ridiculous. As I have already explained in the form of Dr. Drake, I want to help you. Ah, yes. Your new disguise. The doctor considered the crackling form of the scabbers for a moment. 
a shape-changing telepathic amoeboid. Somewhat more sophisticated than your usual rubber mask, hmm? Perhaps a little too sophisticated, eh? The Scabbers is a separate intelligent entity, said the Master, with a rather domineering attitude, noted the Doctor. The Master's nostrils flared slightly, but he stared the Doctor down. The Scabbers and I are partners, my dear Doctor. We want nothing more than to save the planet Earth from itself and allow the Scabbers a chance to live in peace. How very magnanimous of you, the Doctor remarked. He perched on a lab stool and folded his arms. And to what do we owe this miraculous vault fass? Yes, agreed Mike Yates. For someone who spent a lot of time trying to destroy or subjugate the Earth, you seem very keen on saving it all of a sudden. The Master nodded. I admit that my interests are somewhat self-serving. I've decided that the Earth in its present state is far too primitive for my tastes. I'd be more interested in a planet that had a decent level of advancement. You mean you'd like it to mature a little? Like a fine wine? Asked the doctor. The master gave him a condescending smile. The truth of the matter is the Earth will never achieve a sufficiently advanced state if it doesn't address the problems it has now with fossil fuel reliance and the associated pollution. I intend to solve that particular problem so that Earth has a decent future. One that you can plunder at will? Asked the doctor pointedly. Charming, remarked the brigadier. I think you mean honest, said the master. As for the scabbers, well, there again, its own objective is far from simple altruism. The scabbers bubbled and hissed in agreement. My very survival depends on finding a planet that can provide me with the gases I require for life. The master smiled. So there is an exchange to be made. The scabbers can feed on the gases you find noxious, and thus reduce the pressure on the Earth's own natural atmosphere. The doctor scratched his head. In the circumstances, it hardly seems charitable. Turn such an offer down. Now, steady on, doctor, warned the brigadier. But, the doctor continued, it hardly seems fair to make the offer clandestinely by tricking a large part of the human population into thinking Dr. Drake is real. It seemed the easiest and the simplest way, the master sighed. Is that why you're now pointing a tissue compression gun at me? The master's face darkened with suppressed anger. Don't try to provoke me, doctor. Together we could save the entire human race. Think of it. Isn't that what you've always wanted? The human race is perfectly capable of saving itself. You disappoint me, Doctor. You're usually so very keen to interfere. You didn't hesitate when I brought the nesting consciousness here. That was a clear and present danger to the continued existence of Earth. And precisely the sort of thing the High Council of the Time Lords sent me here for. You were exiled, Doctor. The Master smiled wickedly. Exiled like a common criminal. My sentence was rescinded, the Doctor said. I'm a free man. As are you, unfortunately. A free man who came here to ask for your help, insisted the master. I should have known better. Once a lackey of the Time Lords, always a lackey. The doctor stiffened. It is not like that. Isn't it? 
The Time Lords only have to pull on your leash and you'll do whatever they want, Doctor. Oxarius, Omega, they'll have you running errands forever. They most certainly will not. You are nothing more than a puppet for the Time Lords, terrified to go your own way. That's enough. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart's voice filled the room with sudden authority. I will not have the pair of you squabbling like schoolboys. Quite so, Brigadier, sneered the master. But I have said all that I need to. The doctor clearly isn't prepared to listen. This means, regrettably, that I must continue without his support. Or yours. The master swept his compression gun around the lab, keeping everyone motionless. No one wanted to end up like poor Corporal Hansen. Don't be ridiculous, man, said the doctor. You may need my help, not in the way you think. You've had your chance, doctor, the master snarled. And you disappointed me, it has to be said. At that moment, Mike Yates lunged at the master. Mike was perhaps half a yard too far away, but he took his chance regardless. He had once managed a much-celebrated try-saving tackle in an important rugby match and knew he stood a good chance of reaching his target. But he'd reckoned without the master and his better-than-human reflexes. He saw Yates diving and instantly turned his compressor gun towards him, firing as he did so. But if the master was quick, the doctor was like lightning. His right foot shot out of the end of a long leg and his cry of, Hey! split the air. The kick connected solidly with the master's gun hand and set the shot fizzing wildly upwards, compressing a number of ceiling tiles that fell to the floor like playing cards. Yates didn't quite connect. The master twisted away and shouted, Scabbers! The scabbers convulsed and spewed out a huge volume of toxic gas. Only the doctor was quick enough to see what would happen. As the brigadier, Yates, and Benton reeled back, choking and coughing, he covered his nose and mouth with his cloak. The scabbers quickly enveloped the master, altering his appearance once more. It wasn't the kindly old shape of Dr. Drake that appeared, however. It was a taller, broader form altogether, with a shock of white hair and a lined, young, old face. It was the doctor. For a moment, the doctor had the surreal experience of seeing his exact double standing in front of him, right down to the velvet jacket, frilly shirt and bow tie. Then the figure turned and dashed out of the lab. The doctor's first instinct was to give pursuit. But then he saw his friends struggling for breath. Benton and Yates were on their knees. Lethbridge Stewart was lying on his side, gasping for air like a landed fish. My dear chap, the doctor said, kneeling by the brigadier. Are you all right? The brigadier coughed, his eyes watering. Check, Yates and Benton. They'll be fine, the doctor told him. They didn't get as strong a blast as you. Try to relax. It was Yates, gagging for breath, who spoke next. Get after him, doctor, he panted. We'll be fine. The brigadier nodded. Yates is right. Never mind me. Get after them. The doctor patted Lethbridge Stewart on the shoulder and then dashed to the lab telephone. He rang the number for the unit medical wing. Hello? This is the doctor here. Get a medical team to the lab as fast as you can and bring respirators. Three casualties with carbon dioxide poisoning. Thank you. He tapped the receiver hook and then dialed the main gate. It rang a couple of times and then a rather stressed voice squawked, Private Gibbs here. This is the doctor. 
began the doctor. Do me a favour and don't mess about, Gibbs replied irritably. I beg your pardon? The doctor's just gone through my gate, like the bleeding clappers, Gibbs explained. What? Of course, that wasn't the doctor, Gibbs. It was the master. No, sir, it was the doctor, all right. All done up like a dog's dinner, cape and all. Dog's dinner? repeated the doctor, scandalised. Now look here, Gibbs. Gibbs was undeterred. He was driving that old banger of his like a maniac. Who's he think he is, James Bond? Old banger! The doctor slammed down the phone and then ran for the window. In this distance, he could just make out a bright yellow car disappearing around the bend in the road. Aboard the infernal cheek, he stormed. He's taken Bessie! The shortest route to the unit garages from here was to cut directly across the lawns. The doctor threw the window open and dived out, rolling onto his feet and sprinting for the garages just as the medical team arrived in the lab. He ran straight past his new car, silver-winged and gleaming. A wonderful creation, but not quite ready yet. The sight of it reminded him of Corporal Hansen, and he felt a pang of deep regret. Mixed with cold fury, one day the master would be forced to pay for his crimes. The doctor jumped into the nearest Land Rover and gunned the engine, accelerating fast out of the garage and straight past a disbelieving Private Gibbs at the gate. The master drove the doctor's ridiculous vehicle as hard and fast as he could. The engine protested loudly in response to his ruthless handling. Once he was far enough away from Unit HQ, he relaxed his mental command and the scabbers withdrew. The face of the Doctor appeared to melt like an overheated waxwork, running down along with bow tie, frilly shirt and velvet jacket into a pool of crackling slime. The creature oozed onto the passenger seat and the Master laughed out loud. This planet will soon be ours said the scabbers in its slippery, gurgling voice. The master felt an unwelcome chill. That voice was both audible and inside his head. The scabbers possessed a devastating telepathic power. And the master suspected it didn't even understand just how powerful it was. Controlling and channeling that power was his responsibility. Yes, the master agreed. With your powers and my brain, we'll have this dreary little world eating out of our hand by midnight tonight. Eating out of my hand, he thought, savagely. Your hand, repeated the scabbers. The master realised he would have to be very careful with his thoughts from now on. The scabbers was getting too good at reading them. He erected a series of basic mental barriers to prevent any unauthorised pilfering. Why are you shielding your mind? asked the scabbers. Oh, he was a sharp one. I'm preparing for conquest, the master explained easily. I have to concentrate to block out any extraneous telepathic interference. We don't want any mistakes. That seemed to satisfy the thing. The master checked his wing mirrors for any sign of pursuit. There was none that he could see. No police cars, no flashing blue lights, no helicopters. The scabbers had done well in the doctor's little laboratory. With any luck, 
the military types would all be dead of asphyxiation. The doctor, he knew, would have survived. He was almost impossible to kill at the best of times. And gas hadn't worked back at the hotel. The doctor would recover and follow them, if he hadn't already done so. The master checked his mirrors again. Nothing. No sign of another vehicle on the road. No doctor. The hopeless philanthropist was probably too busy tending to the sick and wounded. Well, good luck to him. There would be plenty more sick and wounded before the night was over. The Land Rover wasn't as fast or as nimble as Bessie. The doctor found the drive frustrating. When this was all over, he would make sure his new car was up and flying as soon as possible. It would be the least he could do for poor Daisy Hansen. The master, the most evil genius in the universe, had ended Daisy's life in one callous second. He would do the same thing to the entire population of the Earth if it suited his purpose. And he had asked the doctor for his help. At Greyfield Nuclear Power Station, the governor, Kinley, stood waiting in the reception foyer with Audrey Pilch, the Minister of Ecology, and Geoffrey Turkle, the Chief of the Atomic Energy Authority. Pilch and Turkle had never really got along with each other, being from very different backgrounds, and an enforced weight in each other's company was chafing at nerves. Kinley had done his best to keep matters convivial. Just think, in a few hours we'll have solved the world's energy crisis and started a full reversal of atmospheric pollution, he said. And this country will be leading the way. Audrey Pilch was very pleased about this full reversal of atmospheric pollution, but less enthusiastic about the increased reliance on nuclear power, something she personally abhorred. Geoffrey Turkle was eager to take full control of the joint nuclear power station initiative that would be required, but really couldn't give two hoots about pollution. The only thing that the two of them had in common, if they'd bothered to check, was that neither of them knew what Derek Drake's process actually involved. Both thought they knew, or had at least been told, and assumed the other had checked it all out in detail anyway. As a result, Pilch and Turkle simply sniffed disdainfully at each other and continued to stare past Kinley and out towards the power station's main gate. There he is! Kindly announced, with sudden, heartfelt relief, as he saw Dr. Derek Drake pull up in the car park, reserved for senior management and VIPs. Strangely, Dr. Drake was driving what appeared to be a bright yellow vintage car. He parked, put the handbrake on, and jumped out, heading immediately for the entrance. My dear Kinley, he said as he came in, extending his hand, I'm so sorry to keep you waiting. I was unavoidably detained. Kinley shook the hand. It felt clammy and a little tingly, as if there was a lot of static electricity clinging to the old man. Hardly surprising with these nylon carpet tiles, he thought. Not the usual limousine today, Dr. Drake? Kinley asked. What? Drake glanced back at the old yellow car. Oh, the car! No, I decided to dispense with the services of a chauffeur and drive myself. I thought you didn't own a car, 
said the Minister of Ecology, gruffly. I don't, Drake replied. It belongs to a friend. Not exactly considering the environment, are you? Turkle continued. He was feeling rather bilious and itching for an argument. Soon, my dear Minister, you will see exactly how much I am considering the environment. Soon, Turkle repeated softly. And without thinking, I'll see exactly how much you are considering the environment. For the first time in her life, Audrey Pilch nodded in agreement. As they followed Kinley into the power station proper, the scabbers scolded the master telepathically. You are forgetting yourself, it hissed. The car, your mannerisms, you will give us away. The master seethed. Really, this creature was too much. Stop fussing, he thought. It hardly matters now. They want this so much I can say anything I like. We are very near to the end. Exactly, replied the scabbers. We cannot afford to make any mistakes. The doctor will be following. We must accelerate the process. Well, it had a point there. Very well, he thought. Out loud in the voice of Dr. Drake, the master said, I'm very much afraid. We must hurry, gentlemen. Time is of the essence. It was you who kept us waiting, said the Minister of Ecology. Then we must wait no more, Drake declared. Take me to the main reactor control room. What, now? asked Kinley. All this rush was making him nervous. There was supposed to be a meeting first, in the boardroom, attended by the Minister, the Chief, and several members of the power station management team. And not even the station governor could just walk into the main reactor control room unannounced. The scientists and technicians were there doing incredibly difficult work and were rarely to be disturbed. Yes, now, Drake insisted, staring at Kinley. You must take me now. You must take me now. The old man's eyes bored into Kinley. And for a moment, Kinley saw a pair of deep-set darkly burning eyes that he had never seen before. It was almost as if someone else was looking through Drake's own eyes. Yes, Kinley said, and his voice sounded like it was coming from a long way off. I must take you now. The doctor knew exactly where the master and the scabbers were going. Whatever their plan was, they couldn't wait any longer. And that meant going straight to Greyfield Nuclear Power Station. That also meant the doctor couldn't wait any longer. He was on his own, and it was a race against time. The doctor put his foot down, but the unit Land Rover wasn't built for speed, much less racing. The master would have made good time in Bessie, with its souped-up engine, and was probably already at the power station preparing to put his plan into operation. The Land Rover skidded around a bend and Greyfield Power Station loomed into view. A cluster of grey buildings, a couple of wide, circular silos and a complex network of steel pipes and scaffolding. He pushed the Land Rover faster, the engine howling in protest. 
The entrance to the power station grounds was a simple barrier and gatehouse located in a wire mesh fence that surrounded the complex. The gatehouse was manned by security guards, but the doctor didn't have time to stop and negotiate his way in. He drove straight at the wooden barrier at full speed. The Land Rover smashed through it, splinting the gate into a hundred pieces as the guards dived for safety. In the main control room of the power station, Dr. Drake was being introduced to the head technician and his team. They were very pleased to meet him and proudly showed him the reactor control banks. Every wall covered in complex instrumentation, dials, indicators and flashing lights. It was quite dazzling. The master took in every detail through Drake's eyes. Quickly, precisely, memorising everything he saw. I will need access to the reactor room, of course, he told the head technician. A quiet but good-humoured man called Kirtland. I'm not sure that would be very wise, replied Kirtland. Like all the technicians in this part of the power station, Kirtland wore a long white coat with an ID badge and radiation meter on the lapel. He put his hands in the pockets of his coat, smiled affably, and shook his head. No one is allowed into the reactor room apart from authorised personnel equipped with a radiation meter. I have full authority, said Drake, and I do not require a radiation meter. Kirtland thought Drake was joking and gave a little laugh. <laughs> I'm afraid I have full authority, repeated Drake calmly, and I do not require a radiation meter. Kirtland closed his mouth. This was very odd. He turned to look at Kinley, the station governor, who was nominally his boss. He was flanked by the Minister of Ecology and the Chief of the Atomic Energy Authority. All three of them said in unison, He, he has full authority and does not require a radiation meter. Kirtland wondered, briefly, if this was some kind of practical joke. Then he looked back at Dr. Drake and realised it wasn't. Drake was staring at him, and the stare was intense. I have full authority, he said again, and I do not require a radiation meter. Kirtland had always thought of himself as strong-willed, and clear-headed. His career had been a testament to his intellect and education. But now, impossibly, he felt his will crumbling. Well, he said, not quite sure why he was acquiescing. You'd better come this way, then. Rover screeched to a halt by the main entrance doors, and the doctor sprang out, ready to confront the security guards who were already heading his way. There were two of them, both burly ex-paras who'd left the regiment some years ago and joined the private security profession. They didn't see much action at Greyfield Power Station, so the chance to physically prevent someone gaining entry had them positively salivating. An old white-haired geezer in a frilly shirt and velvet jacket wasn't exactly a challenge. But it would have to do. I wouldn't try to stop me, the doctor said as he approached. 
I'm really not in the mood, and it won't end well, I can assure you. They weren't deterred, and the Doctor had no choice but to continue through them. They tried, they really tried, but in the event, neither laid a hand on him. Venusian Aikido had never been, and never would be, part of the Parachute Regiment's unarmed combat training syllabus. In two swift, decisive moves, the doctor let the guards sprawled at the bottom of the steps, each nursing badly sprained joints and a nasty headache. The doctor raced up the steps into the station without a backward glance. Kirtland stood in the main reactor room with Dr. Derek Drake. Normally, he'd have been quite happy to show such a distinguished and well-loved personality around. But now all he felt was confusion. Perhaps it was the radiation that was fogging his mind. Or perhaps it was something else. The governor, Kinley, and the two government men had been told to wait outside. Drake ordered Kirtland to close and lock the doors. Once again, Kirtland found himself obeying without question. It was all most peculiar. He kept thinking he was dreaming, that he ought to wake up and snap out of it. As the main doors clicked shut, and the heavy security locks hummed into action, Dr. Drake suddenly flung back his head and laughed. At last! He laughed. His voice echoed around the cavernous chamber. Finally, I can be free of this. Kirtland watched in horror as Drake's features began to blur and take on the consistency of molten lava. The old man's kindly face sagged and peeled away to reveal a much more malevolent face beneath. The newly revealed man opened his eyes and stretched. The shape of Dr. Drake oozed down his body and across the floor, where it pooled and turned into the cracking mass that was the scabbard. Kirtland could hardly believe his own eyes, from which the scales had well and truly fallen. With a lurch of pure terror, he realised what he had done and turned back towards the doors. He rattled them uselessly and then suddenly remembered they were locked. He had locked them. I am afraid it's far too late to leave now, said a cruel voice behind him. He turned back to face the man with the dark beard and the burning eyes. Who... who are you? Kirtland stammered. I am known as the Master. Universally. You're mad. Kirtland's professionalism began to reassert itself. You can't stay in here. The radiation will kill you. The Master smiled. Mr. Kirtland, isn't it? Yes. Goodbye. The Master pointed a device. Kirtland was shrunk in the blink of an eye to the size of a cockroach. The Master turned to address the scabbers. Alone at last. The creature oozed across the concrete floor of the reactor room towards a central conglomeration of square ceramic tiles. Electrical sparks arced from the alien to the metal plugs in each tile. I can feel the power beneath us, gurgled the scabbers. 
almost drunk with the proximity of the nuclear fuel rods below. The master felt a pang of nervousness, bringing a creature like the Scabus into a fully functional nuclear reactor was a terrible risk. But then again, nothing good had ever been achieved without risk. The Scavus occupied the centre of the reactor, and more sparks fizzed around its rippling body. Was it growing in size, becoming a brighter colour? The Master wasn't sure. Perhaps the Scavus could draw power from the reactor itself. The Master knew the main job of the reactor was to house and control the nuclear fission process, which split atoms and thus released energy. The process, and it was a ludicrously primitive one, required uranium packed into sealed metal tubes called fuel rods. There were more than 200 of these rods bundled together to form the fuel assembly. This was immersed in water, which acted as both a coolant and control. But in addition to this, the fuel assembly at Greyfield was linked by computer to several other fuel assemblies located around the country and power stations in the rest of the world to help control and stabilise the efficiency of the nuclear reaction. The master considered it an almost barbaric conceit that humankind considered itself responsible enough to embark on such an outrageously dangerous path. But at the moment, it suited his needs perfectly. All he had to do was get the scabbers to obey him. From here we can control everything, he told the creature. But in order for our plan to work, you must do exactly as I say. Do not presume to order me, Time Lord. I will have this power and the planet beneath. Yes, of course, of course, the master thought quickly. You will have your sustenance as much as you like, but you must let me control the process. I know these primitive devices, whereas you do not. Let me direct you. That way we will both get what we want. Oh dear, oh dear, said a voice from the doorway. Things not quite going to plan, old chap. The master whirled to find the doctor standing nonchalantly in the doorway. In one hand was that tiresome sonic screwdriver of his, doubtlessly responsible for unlocking the reactor room doors. The doctor pocketed the screwdriver as he strolled forward, casting a quizzical look at the scabbers. He seems to be getting a little carried away, don't you think? Keep back, Doctor, warned the master, pointing his compression gun. This is between me and the scabbers. Hardly, replied the Doctor. I think the rest of the human race might have a say in what happens here, for one thing. Stay back. I command it. Look, you'd better put that thing away, the Doctor said. If you kill me, then you'll never gain control of your slimy new friend over there, will you? The Scabbers let out a sulfurous roar. Spark literally flying as it realised the Doctor had arrived. What is he doing here? It demanded. Destroy him at once. The Master turned back to the Doctor. Do not antagonise the Scabbers, Doctor. Why? The doctor asked. Worried you'll lose what little control you have? I have total control. No, you don't. Its telepathic field is far too strong. That's why you came to see me at Unit HQ, isn't it? To ask for my help. To help in the reconditioning of Earth, the master said. The scabbers can completely alter the atmosphere of this planet, doctor. For the better. 
Is that what it told you? Asked the doctor. The master hesitated just for a second. The doctor looked at the seething mass of the scabbers as it spread across the reactor floor. Tendrils of electrical energy arcing up and down from the ceiling and walkways. That creature is going to use the power from that nuclear reactor and all the other reactors it's linked to. It will supercharge its ability to absorb carbon dioxide and its ability to emit it. The scavus will alter the Earth's atmosphere, all right, replacing it with something for its own benefit. It will destroy all plant life and all animal life, including human beings. Nonsense! The master snapped. You exaggerate! It's not trying to save the planet, thundered the doctor. It's engineering a complete environmental collapse. It's planning to destroy the Earth. But I can stop that happening, insisted the master. I can control the scavus, prevent it from pushing the atmospheric change too far, or too fast. And if I can control it, a strange light that entered the master's eyes. It was very familiar to the doctor. Then you'll control the Earth, he said. Yes, exactly as I thought. The master sneered. What would be better, doctor? Your favourite planet turned into a toxic wasteland? Or ruled over by me. You really think you can control the scabbers? The doctor folded his arms. Go on, then, he said. But you'd better hurry, because it's getting stronger all the time. I can feel its mental power, too, you know. The master turned and strode purposefully towards the creature. Lines of glowing energy arced around the bubbling mass with ever-increasing ferocity. Scabbers, remember our plan. Bring the reactors under your telepathic control and prepare to instigate atmospheric transformation on my command. You must let me control the process. The slime creature shivered and oozed deeper into the reactor. Energy bolts flickered around the fuel rods. I don't think he's listening, old chap, said the doctor. An automated voice rang out from loudspeakers, positioned around the station. Warning! Warning! Reactor unstable! Scammers! The master shouted over the den of the reactor and the cracking energy. You must listen to me! Obey my commands! The scammers reared up in a sudden rush, trailing lightning. Be gone, my lord! Your role in this is over. My role? The master echoed indignantly. I am the driving force of this operation. It was my plan. Together we can... The scabbers crackled loudly, and the master staggered, clutching his head. No! He cried. I am the master. You will obey me. It's not going to obey you. The doctor told him. It doesn't have to. Because it doesn't need you anymore. It's got what it wanted. Worse than that, the doctor could feel the creature's great telepathic strength assaulting his own mental barriers. The master's face was dark with fury. I will not tolerate this, Scabbers. You will obey me. The next telepathic strike threw the master to the ground and pressed him flat. He held his head and gritted his teeth. 
I will not give in. You will obey me. By now, the entire reactor room was crawling with flickering tendrils of energy as the scabbers began to combine itself with the fuel rods. Banks of instrumentation whirred into life in the control room, and a series of warning lights began to flash urgently. The automated voice said, Warning! Warning! Reactor unstable. T-minus two minutes to meltdown. You can't stop it! The doctor shouted. It's too powerful, just as I said! The master looked at the doctor in sudden desperation. What can we do? For a moment, the doctor was reminded of other, more innocent adventures, centuries ago, when they had once been friends, and a similar question had been posed more than once. There had been times when it had been the doctor asking the question. Join forces, the doctor said. The master stared at him. Our combined mental power may be enough, the doctor continued. He had to raise his voice as another alarm started to sound somewhere in the control room. There were red warning lights flashing on every control panel, and the scabbers began to trill with satisfaction as it fed. We won't be able to control it for long, the master said. Not even both of us. We don't have to, the doctor said. If we accelerate the process, what do you mean? Scabbers is combining itself with the reactor, absorbing the power so that it can reach out to the other connected reactors around the world and trigger an environmental collapse, spewing out toxic gases until the planet chokes. But if the process is accelerated, the master suddenly understood and frowned. It will force this reactor to overload. That might destroy the scabbers, Doctor, but it will result in a catastrophic meltdown. Not if it's already connected to the other reactors, explained the Doctor. You mean the absorption will be evenly distributed? The Master actually laughed. Oh, Doctor, that is very clever. The Doctor nodded. Got to be worth a try. The Master straightened and faced the Doctor, putting the tips of his fingers to his head. The Doctor mirrored the action, closing his eyes in concentration. He knew this was an insanely dangerous plan. The joining of Time Lord Minds was never to be taken lightly. Much less when the two Time Lords involved were deadly enemies. But it was a risk that had to be taken. For a brief period, they would share each other's thoughts. Their memories and dreams would be as one. It would mean that while both minds would become more powerful than one alone. They would also be extremely vulnerable to each other. Ultimately, it was a matter of trust. Each closed his eyes and concentrated, allowing their minds to touch and lock. Instantly, they both knew what had to be done. Contact, said the doctor. Contact, said the master. They linked minds. The scream of the scabbers was almost instant. A sudden, visceral outburst of pain and anger. Lightning flickered in jagged, burning lines across its slimy surface, connecting to the metal of the reactor room walls and floor 
and a shower of glittering sparks. The creature snarled, twisting back on itself like an angry snake. You are no match for me. You are too late. The entire reactor room light suddenly turned red. And many more alert klaxons began to sound. The automated voice rang out again. Warning. Warning. Reactor unstable. Minus one minute to I will not let you destroy this planet, said the master. You will obey me, said the doctor. Their words were drowned out by the alarm sirens, but the scabbers heard them clearly in its own mind. It shrank back like a slug touching salt, lowering itself physically towards the fuel rods below. Lightning crackled round the room. It had been combining itself with the power of the reactor. But now, as if reaching a tipping point, the scabber suddenly realized that the reactor was combining itself with it. The creature could no longer control the process. It roared pain and discharged every volt in its body, purged itself of carbon dioxide in one giant noxious exhalation, twisting and writhing in an attempt to tear itself free of the reactor, the master and the doctor still stood facing one another. Eyes closed, minds joined in deadly unison. Release me! cried the scabbers as it began to shrink and fade, dissipating through the various nuclear reactors around the world. Release! Release me! Its final plea turned into a blood-curdling shriek. And then... Quite suddenly, the scabbers was no longer there. There was a final, snapping arc of electricity into the fuel rods, and then it was gone. Bizarrely, the automated loudspeaker warning hardly altered its tone. Reactor stabilised. The Doctor and the Master, both exhausted by the mental exertion, staggered and fell. The Doctor remained on one knee, breathing hard, eyes screwed shut against the howl of the warning alarms. His vision was blurred and scarlet, his ears still ringing with the scream of the monster. But his thoughts were once more his own. The mental connection with the master had been severed. It was an unpleasant feeling, not a gentle withdrawal, but a sudden agonizing wrench. But like ripping a sticking plaster off, he thought. The alarms began to fade, and he opened his eyes. There were people in the reactor room, men in anti-radiation suits and visors running along the gantries and taking up position by the exits. They were carrying loaded submachine guns. One of them pounded up to the doctor in heavy boots and pulled him to his feet. Doctor, what's going on? Where's the master? The doctor peered into the little plastic window of the protective helmet. That you, Sergeant Benton? 
he asked. Yes. Units taken over the power station. The brig's outside. Where's the master? The master? Benton nodded. Although the effect was lost in his protective suit, he raised his sterling submachine gun. We've got orders to stop him. He can't have got far. The doctor looked around, bewildered. There was no sign of the master. And then, in a sudden rush, he realized exactly what must have happened. Of course. Sergeant Benton, you must secure this area and allow the station scientists to do their work. They'll need to recalibrate the reactor as soon as possible. Roger that, Doc. But what about the master? The doctor's expression hardened. You leave the master to me. The master walked quickly across the flat roof of Greyfield Nuclear Power Station. His instinct may have been to run, but he did have his dignity. Besides, there was no one else up here, and no one would come looking. Unit helicopters were hovering over the power station. And in the distance, he could see military vehicles and police cars approaching the site. They had acted very quickly, he had to admit that. But not quickly enough. The Scabus may have been defeated, and the reactor saved. But they wouldn't catch him. Not again. In the center of the roof was a small, low-roofed outbuilding with a single door and a conglomeration of aerials and equipment attached to the roof. It was very similar in appearance to the building from which the master had emerged moments earlier, which housed the access stairway to the roof. I see your TARDIS chameleon circuit is still functional, said the doctor. The master turned. The doctor was standing right behind him. Yes, it's very good. Blends right in. The benefit of regular and routine maintenance, said the master with a smile. No, don't come any closer, doctor. He produced his compression gun and aimed it at the doctor. I knew your TARDIS would be up here, the doctor said. You'd already seen in my mind where my TARDIS was parked, the master realized, nodding ruefully. Really, Doctor, that was one of my most private thoughts. One of them, yes, the Doctor admitted. I saved your life back there, you know. You saved everybody's life, the Master said. He smiled modestly. With my help, of course. Funny how things turn out, isn't it? No doubt you think we should work together again, Doctor. Saving lives, planets... Every man and his dog. We could do it, you know, the doctor said. That's always been your trouble, doctor. You're a dreamer, an idealist. Well, my dreams are different to yours. I know. I've seen inside your mind, remember? And you've seen inside mine. The master thought about shooting the doctor there and then. But something made him hesitate. It was the face of a young unit soldier, the one he'd shot in the doctor's laboratory. For some reason, her face came instantly and clearly into his mind, as did her name, Daisy Hansen. She was called Daisy Hansen, 
There's a terrible cost to what you do, said the doctor gravely. An entire life extinguished in a moment. Someone will have to explain to her family and friends what happened. They will have to cope with that news for the rest of their lives. You planted that thought in my mind, said the master. There was little anguish in the accusation. Only contempt, and I doubt it will stay with you for very long, said the doctor sadly. But it's there for now. That's something, at least. You can't stop me leaving, the master warned. And I'm not going to try. But I would be very grateful if you'd leave planet Earth alone from now on. It has quite enough problems of its own, you know, without you adding to them. Before the master could reply, there was a crash from behind the doctor, and unit troops in full protective suits flooded onto the roof, led by the brigadier and Captain Yates. Halt! ordered the brigadier, pistol in hand. But the distraction had been just enough to allow the master a chance to enter his TARDIS. The doctor heard the door click shut and turned in time to see the access cabin dematerializing. Seconds later, there was nothing there but a cool breeze and a dozen unit soldiers. Too late, said Captain Yates. In frustration, the brigadier stepped up to the doctor. You let him get away, doctor. The doctor frowned. I didn't actually get a chance to stop him, brigadier. But don't worry. The scabbers is finished, and nuclear reactors all around the world aren't about to go critical. You're very welcome. Yates coughed politely, and the brigadier scowled. Well, of course I knew you'd have things under control here, doctor. Quite a nasty trick that creature pulled back at HQ. Good job you were straight on the master's heels. Yes, quite, agreed Yates. Shame about not sorting out the Earth's pollution, though. That would have been nice. The master was going to use the scabbers to force Earth into total subservience, the doctor explained. Only he couldn't actually control it. And the scabbers planned to double-cross him and turn the planet into a toxic wasteland unfit for human habitation. Just as well you were around then, said the brigadier innocently. Still, pity you couldn't have done a bit more to stop the master getting away again. The doctor sighed. On the contrary, brigadier, I have done more than enough. For the master, for the Time Lords, and for this entire planet. But never enough, it seems, for you. <laughs> You have been listening to Doctor Who, Terror of the Master, by Trevor Baxendale. Performed by John Colshaw. Script editor, Roland Moore. Sound design and music, Steve Foxen. Producer, David Richardson. Executive producers, Nicholas Briggs and Jason Haig Ellery.
Hello, I'm James Goss, and I wrote Masterpiece. Who is that? <laughs> this is priceless. Oh, never mind all that. <laughs> Who are you? Why, my dear Miss Grant, don't you recognize us? No, sorry. Should we drop a hint? Let's be naughty. Oh, yes, let's. It was very nice when Matt Fitton sat me down and said, would you like to do the five doctors but for the master? And with a very, very loose but also a very tight brief that effectively the various forms of the master have to unite to try and save the universe but immediately you realize that's never going to work that's never going to happen and at the same time i found myself feeling rather like robert holmes when approached originally to do the five doctors just the idea that you you have this lazy susan loaded with ingredients that's spinning faster and faster and every now and then matt would go oh we've got this and you'd you'd see him managing to add extra things that had to be included and trying to come up with a structure and an idea that would work. And in some ways it is all of the masters all together in a quarry fighting different things. But also it's it's about the fact that it's never going to be like the five doctors in that the masters cannot cooperate. And also by their very definition this is a story about what if the master wins. But also the idea that the master never can win. And it's about bringing out the different aspects of the master by putting them against each other. Because when I was a child, we had the five faces of Doctor Who, and I thought that the three Doctors was the most magical thing I'd ever seen on television. I still didn't even really properly understand what a Doctor Who was. But Patrick Troughton yelling at John Pertwee and the two of them fighting, I could have watched that forever. And I was very sad when they went and did other things. So I hope there's I hope there's a little bit of that. There is a joyous idea to the idea of John Sim and Sir Derek Jacobi bickering in a car. You just go, well, that's lovely. That's going to be something that people will enjoy listening to. Hello, I'm David Richardson. I'm the producer of Masterful. Hello, I'm Ken Bentley, and I have directed Masterful. What's it like working on a project where it's a huge cast of characters, but almost all of them are the villain? Partly that's strange and partly that's why I'm, it, it, I, I sort of have no concept because they know these characters so well and because they're coming in and they're doing those characters. I know that individually each of those characters sounds fantastic but the idea of having them all in the same scene and what it's going to sound like to have them all arguing with themselves will be quite surreal, I think. But I think the lovely thing is what I've really appreciated from doing this actually is how every single actor playing the master has a completely unique take yes. on who he or she is. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no confusing any two of them. I mean, even, say, even though the Saxon Master and the Reborn Master, for example, are both quite witty and funny and can be quite frenetic yeah. and energetic, you'd never They're still in different two. ways. They're, yeah. they're really very distinct characters, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And it's interesting how they sit how they each fit into their period of the series as well I find quite fascinating and you can, you can sort of tell what period of Doctor Who they are by the, by the character not just because they were the master at that time but just because that master suited that period of time mm. he got so close cost him a planet, a star system a quadrant and a wave of devastation spreading out across the universe like cheap margarine, his fault a setback, that's all <laughs> Today has marked 
John Sims return to yeah. the role. Yeah. First... Did, we, did we manage to put him off? I don't think so. His first time with Big Finish, he had a huge smile on his face. How did you find working with John? Great. He's lovely. Yeah, yeah. nice chap. And him and Derek together actually had a great energy and rapport. Yeah. I'm Derek Jacobi and I play the War Master. I'm John Sim and I play the Saxon Master. You really thought you could con all your previous selves out of our lives? I won, didn't I? Really? If there's a Time Lord to pull off the Ouroboros paradox, it certainly isn't you. Oh, they're always great scripts. Lovely. They're, they're fun. They're interesting to do and they're a joy to do. I, I, I love them. And it's part of the choice of these scripts. Is that you, can, you can pick it up quickly, you know. You can get the gist of it very, very easily, very quickly. And it makes more sense when you're doing it, doesn't it? Because I, I, yeah. I read it through last night and I've got to be honest, I didn't have a dicky boat. <laughs> I thought, what is going on here? I've no idea what is going on. It was just madness. And then reading it in the booth, I was, I, yeah. it made sense. Yeah, and it was, uh, it was well, a lot of fun. When you've done a few of them, you kind of you learn to go, go with just it. Just go with know, it. Just relax. Just say it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a huge script, and what we did with each pairings or each group of people was they were each given a filleted form of the script, weren't they? They, they only got the threads that concern their characters. So. Yeah, which is a very normal thing to do in um, film and television, but uh, not so normal. Certainly we don't. We'd, we'd normally supply everybody with everything, but mm. it's a, a long script to yeah. ask everybody to read if if they're not in episode two. Yeah. So, for example, Derek and John today didn't get to read anything that didn't involve their characters, did they? No. You're just a frightened child after all. I'm going back to the car. Come back! Obey me! Obey me! The idea was giving them a road movie together, partly just because the idea was very, very entertaining, but also because a friend of mine who listens to everything that Big Finish has ever done said to me about Light at the End, which is the 50th anniversary Big Finish story. He just went, Tom Baker and Paul McGann in a car. Wasn't that lovely? I could have listened to that for discs. And I just went, oh, let's let's do that. Let let you know that that's clearly a safe banker. Just the idea of the two of them arguing over boiled sweets in the back of a car. I mean, it doesn't end up quite being like that, but it's the idea of putting in opposition these two characters: one who is the master who actually wins. That's the amazing secret to the war master. He's the competent one. He's the one who's actually done terrible, terrible things and won. Whereas John Sim is, his master is the one who can sort of remember. He's the one who's taken over in a job after somebody who is very good at it and thinks he's better at it. But actually, if you look at the John Sim master, he's worse. He's total incompetent. But there is a joy and a thoroughness to his incompetence. And also he believes he's brilliant because he is insane. He actually achieves things. They're just the wrong thing and it's the idea about putting these two together the most competent master and the least competent master but also the war master is the most devious of masters that's one of the great things that big finish has done they've revisited this character and they've gone what if the master was actually very good at being the master and i think that's what's great about that segment in that you actually get to see not only two of the most respected actors working in the industry, sitting together in a small car whilst 
whilst the apocalypse happens, but also just discovering the different ways in which they work with each other. Well, he's written differently, yeah. isn't he, in, in, in every era, I guess. I, I mean, for me, watching uh, Professor Yarn turn like into, yes. into him was a real shock, mm. especially when you said, you know, those iconic words, yeah. I am the master. It was a real shock. And then I guess Russell wanted me to be like David Tennant with all that manic energy and to be his equal... And then the next time I played him, he was like this crazy sort of half mutant kind of <laughs> guy with with things coming out of his hands, and and he turned into everybody. He was just really manic. And then the final time, maybe not the final, but the last time I played him, he was a lot calmer. He was a little bit more like that magician that I remember as a kid with the goatee. He was a bit sort of different writers, different interpretations, I guess. Uh, John was saying actually he was terribly disappointed when he did the TV job that. Because he was expecting to meet Derek and right. didn't, so today has been the day yeah. he got to work with Derek. Yeah, yeah, but of course on TV you never, particularly with a, a role like that where you're handing a role over, the likelihood of meeting is, um, or it's unlikely you'll meet. We didn't Maybe. see each other, did we? No, we've never met. No, no. No. It was a real bummer, actually, because yeah. I thought, when, when, when no, I went in, I thought, the regeneration scene, at least I'm going to meet Derek yeah, Jacobi. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't. I, no, we didn't meet at all. We did it separately. No. It was a real, that was a real shame. They kind of wobbled me out, and they wobbled in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm Milo Parker, and I play the young master. Akin was organising a protest. To get people released from the prison hole? Yes. Or at least to allow their friends and family to visit them? Indeed. And now she's gone? Into confinement. Would you like to join her? No. Are you being difficult? It's my middle name. Come, sit over here and have some crackers. When I read the script, I was actually in France on holiday, so it was a little bit of a contrast from, from the sunny south of France. But um, I thought it was really interesting. It's a very well-written script, and it's, it really pulls you in. It's very immersive. And um, I, I honestly, I really loved reading it, and I, and I really liked my character that I was playing. I thought he was really, as I say, different to what I'd done before. Uh, and um, as a fantastic cast, and um, yeah, I was, I just, I really love the script from from the second I read it. Yeah. I see that look on your chops. I'm bagsying the macarena. You summoned your former selves here so that we'll all kill each other. Maybe. So all the characters I've sort of done in the past have been relatively sort of you know well behaved, if you like, um, and um, so it's it's an opportunity for me to sort of broaden my sort of horizons a little bit, try something new, and uh, I've really enjoyed doing it. I was uh, working on the Durrells for the past four years. We've done four series, uh, and um, we brought that to a close last year. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. You know, we you know, got to live in Corfu for for two months of every year since 2015, which is you know really hard work. It's a very tough job. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. And um, yeah, it was fantastic. I got to meet some amazing people. Um, I've made friends for life, really. When we were filming the first series, we thought that this was something, you know, oh, people are going to really like this, this is a lovely drama, but we didn't realise quite how much it would resonate with people and, and, and how much people could fall in love with it. And it was really, really lovely to have that, that such a fantastic reaction to it because it is a really good feel-good show and it, 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 you sort of fall in love. I mean, Corfu is a main character and you fall in love with it. So, I mean, after series one, the difference on the, the sort of mood on set was, was significant on series two, three and four because we knew how much this meant to some people and it, and it, was, just, it was just the loveliest job and it had such a big impact on, on, on the viewers, so, yeah. What makes me into you? Oh, failure. Tinged with compassion. This interview is over. Oh, no, you asked for it. It's the idea of a master at the point in their life when they are so young that 
they're full of ambition but haven't yet realised that it all goes horribly wrong and that down the line they just become worse and worse as a human being. Up against one of the joyous things about the reborn McQueen master is that he is actually a very, very competent master, but in the sense of being sadistic. My name is Alexander McQueen and I play the reborn master. But on the good side, we've finally got creation to ourselves. What's left of it? Oh, I think we can rebuild in our own image. It's a massive privilege, and I love it, because it's um, an incredibly creative experience in the booth. There's very few characters. If you played it like this, perhaps on television, you might be potentially laughed out of town for overacting, etc. But I think because of the medium, because of radio, you can put in a lot more colour and vividness into your performance to allow people to imagine more, I suppose. So you get away with a lot more in sheer performance terms. So it's a real pleasure to do in that regard. There's a wonderful, wonderful one of the Dark Eyes ones where it turns out that he's an ophthalmologist and is steadily removing chunks of people's eyes, but he's doing it in such a polite, kind, caring way. That's the thing about the McQueen Master. He's just so thoroughly nasty. He doesn't necessarily get things done because he wants to get things done, but along the way he's just delighting in the horrific detail. And it's the idea of the juxtaposition between innocence and experience. An innocently evil master who generally thinks, if people would listen to me, things would get done. And the McQueen Master who's there going, I've tried that, nobody does, so you may as well just kill them. So I know Milo, who's playing the young master, because of the Durrells. So I played a character called Colonel Ribbindane in the last series of the Durrells. And I, yes, I tried to assassinate him. Uh, I didn't succeed. But nevertheless, I tried to uh, kill him in a moment of madness as a sort of ex-crazy soldier. So I met him, I think, about a year ago, literally a year ago now, because we're, we're recording this in... September 2019 so I met him this time last year in Corfu and it was a hot I mean, frankly it was a holiday for me and I think they really enjoyed it too it's a very nice obviously a very nice atmosphere to work in for some of the cast it's a lot more demanding but for me it was as a guest it was a real sort of jolly basically I've worked with the Sederic I've just worked with him on uh, Horrible Histories of the Movie, where he plays Claudius, uh, the Emperor, and I play Sycophantus, who becomes, who was his chief of staff, but then I quickly become the chief of staff to his uh, nemesis and the person who takes over from him, Nero. So I've, I've worked with Sir Derek Jacobi. Uh, Mark Gatiss I've worked with on a thing called Sally Forever, which was a recent HBO series, and I've also done some audio with him in the past, so I've worked with him. I haven't worked with Missy. I've worked with Gina McKee in In the Loop, which was a film about 10 years ago now, uh, a side, a side, a sort of sideshow, as it were, to the Thick of It series, and Jeffrey Beavers. Frankly, the last one I did was A Tale of Two Masters or something like that. So I've worked with him, which was lovely, and that is it. Yeah. My name is Aurora Burkhart, and I'm playing Akim and Carla. We have to do something to improve conditions... Have you tasted the water recently? Come on. True. The new captain needs to be told. Do you think he'll listen? We've got to make a difference. My characters are sisters 
who've been separated by this kind of complex war and they they kind of share a similar spirit of um bravery and kind of recklessness and a real drive i think carla's more you know she's trying to get to a certain place uh, uh akeem's a, a bit more of an agitator they are really people who've been affected i guess by the situation and who are yeah really swamped in it i'm zaki ismail and i'm playing sardo he's one of the people stranded stuck on the vessel and he's got great scenes with um the master and that's really fun to play with to to see how you can the two characters sort of like butt heads but also you know complement each other and the banter back and forth really comes across and so it's nice to play with that and um obviously doing it with real people right there that's a lot of fun the captain's forbidden it we are not to leave the cargo bay until we arrive in 65 years in 65 years i'm trapped i had such a great time when i did um a couple of episodes a few years back of the actual show and it's just nice to come back to it it's something that stayed with me and the experience is nothing short of amazing every time the two episodes i was in were um before the flood and under the lake and i played tim lunn who was a part of a crew that were stranded in an underground uh, underwater base i was part of the science division and i was the translator who later became in charge and um he was innocent kind-hearted member of the team and um who was the doctor who <laughs> the doctor came and saved it was my first ever job out of uh, i was still in drama school when i did it and so the experience of that was you know learning on the job but also having an amazing team and 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 cast and crew that was so supportive of the fact that I was a complete newbie and learning the ropes and then you know doing it and then once it's all come out and just the response and the love that the fan base um the whoverse sort of uh, give you it's it still t- t- today four years on it's just unmatched my master and i we had a moment or two Didn't we? Honestly. Oh. It'd be like making goo-goo eyes at a budgie. Missy and Joe Grant is a deep and absolute joy because it's the idea of the most innocent character from the pantheon of Doctor Who companions meeting the most joyously malicious version of the master the great thing about missy is that missy has all of these plans but is simply reveling in each and every breath which makes her exactly the same as joe grant these are two characters who love being alive and the point of this strand is the idea that missy has effectively sent all the different masters off on different missions but Missy's challenge is to find out why the doctor has a companion what does a companion give to the doctor and Missy actually starts to realize that it's about making a friend and the test for her is can she become friends with Joe Grant the answer is everyone can become friends with Joe Grant because Joe Grant is so lovely and Missy starts to realize what it is in Joe Grant that the doctor sees why the doctor has companions how they make the doctor better which leads to her realizing i just can't go through with it i can't go through with having a friend which is really really sad 
and it's sad for Missy, but also it's part of allowing Missy to realise exactly how it is that she is going to have to solve everything at the end. I am Michelle Gomez and I play Missy the Master. You revolting, disgusting old hag. That is how Key Wildcard appears, yes? No, I meant you, underneath that ridiculous disguise. Take it off. Oh, Dad. No fair. That takes me back to when I was offered the role in the first place and my agent called me and, and, and said, you know, you might want to sit down for this one. I've got an offer for you and, and it's for Doctor Who and it's to play the master. And I, and I just couldn't wrap my head around the fact that I was being offered the role of the master because, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a woman and it has, you know, historically always been played by men and it didn't really sink in until I was standing there on set on, on day one. Uh, and even then, you know, it was it was it took a, it took a while for it to really absorb it. And so today, I'm still so proud that you know I I I got to be in a show that I'm actually you know first and foremost I'm a fan of the show before I'm an actor, and then I get to actually be in it as well, and play the master. You know, it's just a phenomenal privilege. It really really was, and I'm I'm so happy that I still get to you know sort of keep the master alive with these wonderful adventures that you guys have given me. I'm just so thrilled. And it also, I think, brings out a more cunning side to Joe Grant. Joe Grant's only weapon in life is niceness. And she uses that niceness as a weapon. And she uses her innocence and her wide eyes to get Missy to do everything that she wants. It is one of those tricks in life that you realise that emotionally intelligent people make everybody do everything for them. Whereas the master is thinks that they're an emotionally intelligent person, really they're up against an absolute innate expert in Joe Grant, somebody who can get anyone to do anything simply by just being lovely. I'm Casey Manning, and I play Joe Grant. Whenever the Doctor and I find some books... Found. You're forgetting he's dead again. Oh, rubbish. He's not dead. My Doctor can never die. Well, now you're just trolling me. When that script fell through my door, because I just happened to be... I mean, we've been talking about how all the people that have come in and played other characters. And, but when I saw that, of course, I'm a massive Missy fan. Fortunately, I met Michelle, and we got on very well, because she's actually a little bit like she is in the character as she is in life. She's created such an amazingly funny, beautifully, beautifully fully recognised character, I think, for the master. It's a Missy. But, of course, I've, I'm a huge fan. So, I mean, I'm, I just dropped the script on the floor. And, I, and, of course, all the masters, all through time. I mean, hello. I'm very, very, very honoured and very lucky to be a part of it. You know, I mean, it, it frightened the hell out of me at first. Plus, I thought you were going to kill Joe off forever. <laughs> I said, I said to lovely James Goss, who's written so beautifully for other things I've done in the past. This is their way of saying, <laughs> you know, bye-bye, Joe. I said, so we never get to Joe Grant Jones. And then I went, I love the irony of this. You know, we've done lots of, like, um, the death of Joe Grant and so on and so but having this cast, I mean, what an absolute coup for Big Finish. I'm a very, very lucky person to be doing this, and I'm extremely grateful. And we were delighted to have Eric Roberts back as the master. Um, 
Eric has done quite a bit for us recently. He did an episode of the Diary of River Song. He appeared with uh, some of the other masters in The Eighth Doctor Ravenous, the finale of that series. Um, And so it was wonderful to have him back in this as well. As before, we recorded Eric in Los Angeles, where he lives. So he was recorded separately. And uh, at the end of the recording, um, he spoke to Jason Hay Gallery about the experience of doing this. As a character in the story, he's what we all should fear. All of our worst everythings, all of our worst wants, all of our worst behaviors. And uh, for an actor, he's just plain fun. I mean, how often do we get to play the extreme in evil? And it's just fun. It's what every eight-year-old boy practices when he's, when he's, when he's just joking around with his imaginary friends. It's just fun. You think I'd bother setting all this up just for the pleasure of your company? Why would I waste my time? I don't like your tone. I wish that wasn't all I didn't like about you. When I was originally offered you the master, I turned it down. And they asked me, they called me back and they said, you know, why are you turning us down? I said, because it's, it's not realistic. It's way too campy. It's over the top. They said, if we let you play it real, will you play it? I said, yes. So they, uh, they let me play it real with my runny nose and my drooling self and my nasty voice. And um, I had a great time playing it. So to come back to it is dessert. My memories are it was fast. It was fun. It was furious. And we had an Incredible costume. I don't, I don't recall the name, but I recall the costumes were just incredible. And we're all dressed to the nines, all sweating. I remember that. It was very hot. And, uh, and I also remember the cloak that I had that I walked down those steps with when I say I always dress for the occasion. That cloak weighed over 40 pounds. Yeah, it was an incredible piece of clothing. The contact lenses were a nightmare, but they were such a good look that I could not say no to them because they were actually going to allow me to say no. But I said, no, we got to work this out. And we did. It was horrible, but we did. We worked it out. It's such a great effect. I'm Jeffrey Beavers, and I play the master. Over to you. Please, no, stop it. Enough of this torture. Not a bit of it. Keep your head over that bowl and keep inhaling if you know what's good for you. Five more minutes and hopefully you won't catch a cold. A lot of it is quite extreme on the edge of the universe and and full of the usual kind of histrionics. And then suddenly in the middle of it there's this gentle lake, this sort of still, still moments. It's It's lovely, it's very beautifully written. And it's quite a challenge doing the transition into what that sort of person might have been and back again, yes, and what effect it has on him afterwards. Part of this was a homage to Joe Lidster's master, which is one of the best things that Big Finish has done because it's the idea of what if the Jeffrey Beaver's decayed master had a life and was loved. And this is, this is an echo of that, but it's about giving him happiness and joy and the idea that you know he finds contentment with somebody who is, in many ways, as deeply broken as he is. And it's the idea of two people putting their horrific past behind them and deciding they're just going to be happy together in their very, very tiny version of eternity. And then Eric Roberts' movie master turns up and goes, well, this isn't going to do at all. Yes, it really stretches the bounds. It's lovely. I think it's, re- it's really different, but it's really good because it's... Uh... 
is it's slightly off the beaten track because it explores who the master might have been had he sort of taken a different course in in eternity, his life or whatever you call it. My name is Abigail McKern and I play Kitty. A long time ago, I made a mistake. We all make mistakes. Yes. It's how we deal with them. I took it to heart. When I fail, I tend to pick myself up and move on. Mm, I'm not like you. Perhaps it's no bad thing. What I found most challenging was trying to imagine the loneliness (laughs) and of really believing that you're the only person on a planet and the survival instincts that you would... I mean, she's obviously done it. She's obviously managed to grow her own food and keep herself safe. But I think I would go mad. It's a bit like Desert Island Discs, isn't it? It's almost impossible to imagine being being on your own. And then... And then the kind of joy of meeting somebody and actually getting on with them as well and, and, and becoming comfortable with them. And then the confusion when there's suddenly another person there that you didn't imagine to be there. Take my arm, ma'am. Oh, mom, <laughs> Such a gentleman. Don't think I can't tell you're turning on the charm. <laughs> Runs in the family. <laughs> We were saying as we were recording it, gosh, this is so domestic. It's quite unusual because you can actually really work on a relationship. You know, you have, because there are quite a few scenes in, in this kind of two people getting to know each other and not knowing they've both got secrets and things. But it was different, very different from usual. The great thing about what the movie master is doing in that is that he is turning up and he's going, you're both living a lie. You're both unable to see the truth allow me to deceive you into seeing the truth because some of what masterful is about is about disguises and one of the things that you can't do on audio is have rubber masks but it's about the different disguises that the master wears throughout the story so you do have the beaver's master is wearing a disguise in some way all of the various masters are wearing disguises throughout the adventure you know there there are a lot of metaphorical rubber masks hitting the studio floor throughout this And this is about, well, one thing that the movie master does in this is actually go to Beavers and go, you are still wearing a mask. If you think you can be truly happy, take that mask off. It's a very, very cruel joke that he plays. But also I suspect that there's a slight element in it of no mask can allow another master to be happy. He's had a perception filter on all this time, so he believes himself to be good-looking and so he accepts himself much more the master but then he has to go and present the real truth of himself to her and that she will accept it and love him because she's he's come to trust her and of course she can't no one can face the master in that condition <laughs> so that's really a bit tragic kitty i i i have something to sh- <laughs> <laughs> You had to imagine being in a situation where you're, you know, completely 
feeling content and happy and calm and looking forward to, you know, the next half hour, what's going to happen. I mean, and hearing somebody calling your name and expecting them to walk into the room and the idea of just turning around and seeing an absolute horrific image, the shock would give you enough for a heart attack. I mean, and imagining what that, that would look like and what whether you would not believe that you were seeing it for a second and then maybe think for another second because, of course, when you're in panic, your brain works really, really, really quickly, so you probably have 250 thoughts in a second and one of the thoughts might be there's there's been some sort of horrific accident or, you know, so, so, something terrible has happened and... And then maybe the next second realising that the, the truth, which is this is the real person and and that you felt close to them and now you're looking at an absolutely terrifying, horrific horror movie. And you you have to sort of do all that, have all those thoughts in a, in a flash, you know, and that's that's quite a challenge, but it's it's really um, quite exciting to do as well. Thank you for your kindness and your cocoa. Don't mention it. It really is delightful. (laughs) Geoffrey and I haven't seen each other for decades. That was so nice when I saw that he was his name on the cast list. We worked together in 1986, something like that, somewhere in the mid-80s, years and years ago. Uh, and we were both in a lovely production of uh, The Crucible at the Young Vic in London, yeah. And uh, she played one of the young girls in it, and I played the priest. Not very nice priest. So it was lovely to see her again and work with her. It's great. I'm not sure whether I've actually seen him in, in that time. Hasn't seen, doesn't seem to have changed at all. But it was a really good production and um, I was very proud of that production and um, I'm still in touch with some people from that production. And that's the nice thing about acting. And if, you've, if you're if you old and you've been in it a long time, you do get to work with people again. But sometimes there literally is 5, 10, 20, 30 years in between seeing them. And it's as if you um, only saw them a couple of years ago. You know, you just get straight... Because actors have to communicate very quickly, get to know people very quickly, because you might only have a day or a couple of days to work together. So you have to feel comfortable with each other very quickly. So it just slots back into place. And you just remember all those years ago. And it's like, oh, I know this person, it's fine, sort of thing. So, yeah, it was very enjoyable. I am Mark Gatiss, and I play the alternative master... I have taken the liberty of activating the auto-destruct on the space yacht, sir. (laughs) Very good, very good. Well, once I've sorted that out, I've got bigger fish to kill. Yes, if there's any chance of saving the universe, I'm just going to have to invade Gallifrey. I was asked in 2003 to play an alternative version of the Master in a series for Big Finish called Doctor Who Unbound, in which various actors who were nearly the Doctor, or who'd sort of been the Doctor, got their own spin-off. So um, Geoffrey Bailden did an alternative first Doctor, and Michael Jaston played the Valiard. And um, Derek Jacobi did a very interesting one 
playing a, a person who thought he was the Doctor, as it were, as I remember. And and mine was uh, David Warner, who was was asked to be the Doctor after John Pertwee left, I think. And um, it was a lovely story set in Hong Kong where David Warner was the alternative third Doctor and it was an adventure with the Brigadier and I was the alternative master. I remember having a Union Jack tie that was described. I mean, I didn't wear it in the booth. That would have been... <laughs> and David Tennant as a, as a unit colonel. Um, and it was lovely, yes. And I, I get to go work with David Warner and um, the great Nick Courtney as well. So it was, a, it was a real pleasure. And then over the years, somehow or other, I seem to have been asked back. You're not what I expected. No? You're a beautiful woman, improbably. Why, Doctor, you could reverse the polarity of my neutron flow. Just touch these two lips together. But have I the right? You can't doubt it. Just the idea of those two actors kissing just makes me giggle. Oh, I, I think she's absolutely wonderful in every respect. I think, you know, there's something... What a brilliant piece of casting she is, talking about great casting. I mean, she's just just instantly fabulous, I think. And I love her. There's a bit in um, Magician's Apprentice, I think it is, when she wants Clara to get into the Dalek. She just goes, get an... <laughs> and it always makes me howl, because it's so, she's sort of fantastically matter-of-fact. You know, she's fantastically Scottish sort of matter-of-factness to her. But also, she's a wonderfully Baroque personality, I think. You know, she's just kind of wild and wonderful. So, uh, yes, it's a real joy to to cross swords with her. The Unbound Master, uh, Sam Kisgart's Master. Now, he is a master who has read every single Target novelization, has them on his shelf, and absolutely loves being the master. And, you know, when he, where he was left uh, in The New Adventures of Bernie Summerfield, available now from Big Finish, is he was left in charge of a universe... And we realise in this story that not only is he in charge of his universe, but actually he's grown to love it, he's grown to care for his universe. He is a master from another universe who has done good, who has won, who is controlling a universe and actually has everything to lose. He is, of all things, a saintly master in some very deep and darkly troubled ways. And this is actually about him discovering that his entire happy universe that he controls has been stolen from him by this bunch of clowns in another universe. And he's out for revenge. And he's going to take everything down that he can because he is that wonderful. And also, it's just a chance to have fun. What if the Master becomes president of Gallifrey? What if the Master blows up some very, very expensive and famous Doctor Who villains along the way? And also, what if a master falls in love with Missy? And, you know, there is a joy to the scenes with him and Chameleon and him and Missy because it's, I think, what Missy finds attractive in The Unbound Master is this is a master who absolutely loves being the master and having a good time. And Missy is a version of the master who also really loves having a good time. This is John Coleshaw and I am playing Chameleon, also chameleon metamorphosizing shape-shifting into the master as played by anthony ainley and moments where chameleon when he's with joe and to reassure her well he takes on the tone of the third doctor uh, for a moment in time um so yes 
Chameleon and others. Listen, we're going to the city and we're going to save everyone. This is your plan? Yeah. Why? You got a better one? I would not dare to suggest anything that could compare. Well, I love these characters. I've watched them all my life. And you really care about them. As a fan. As, as much as anything. And I, I think as a fan. So I sort of... Um, I like to think that I've got a, an instinct as to how a fan would like to hear them done. And, and that's really how I approach it. With, with, with love to take the characters they made and created. I mean, they've shown exactly how to, to do it. So take that and um, match the vocal sounds and the nuances. Just get as technically near as I can with that. And uh, wow, it, it gives you a sort of a glow to, uh, to take them on and, and walk with them a while. And I consider it a, a very great honour and a, a joy to perform it, really. Thank you, Doctor. <laughs> you really helped. Have I, Joe? Because whatever did this could still be out there, you know. Doesn't matter now, Doctor. I no longer feel quite so alone. Not when you're here. Well, thank you. Come on. <laughs> I've known these voices all of my life uh, and have just recited them for fun. You know, many times as the, uh, uh, the brigadier, you'd say, yes, that's right, uh... Whenever a situation needs uh, a little uh, infusion of efficiency, uh, you'd probably quite naturally take on the Brigadier and to, to record that for the Five Doctors audiobook, along with Anthony Ainley's Master, uh, was fabulous to do. It, I, that's one of my favourite uh, Ainley Master performances in the Five Doctors. There was something absolutely spellbinding about that. What makes you think I want your forgiveness? <laughs> Why me? Because we need someone disposable. And he just relished the evil so much in The Five Doctors. That's really the template I aim for. And there's lots of moments to uh, hint at that and give a little nod and raise your hat to it in, in this story. Well, having Mr Kosher as the brigadier, which I've had now... And been a huge fan of his. I mean, I, I, I lie in bed at night listening to Mr. Kosher on Radio 4 Extra because he is a voice master. And, of course, John was also a voice master and encouraged me enormously to actually not just do all my wacky voices for fun but to actually maybe one day make a living, which I never thought crossed my mind that I might actually be useful one day. But in our hearts and our minds... We are all those characters, and to fans, you don't, you know, they don't think about you being an old person because they had this permanent picture, and I think John still has that permanent picture in his mind. But listening to him, and I guess I had exactly the same thing with Tim in a sense, and then of course John having done Brig, it's it brings old tingles all the way through. So it 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 works for me as well because I'm getting back people that would always be in my heart and would always be in my wonderful smiling memories but of course I know they're not really here and so it, it, it kind of brings back that warmth and, and that's something I will always 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 cherish and keep and that is the warmth and the cuddliness of working on Doctor Who and working with John 
and of course now Koshaw and, and Tim and it's all I think it's just amazing and I think Big Finish are incredible to take the risks that they're taking and by golly they're paying off and we're also celebrating 50 years of Joe Grant, who appeared in the Master's first story back in 1971. Which is why she's in this. You see, I didn't know that. Yeah, Sorry. see, we are celebrating Katie Manning. I don't, I'm not even sure, actually, we mentioned to Katie that she was part of this celebration, but um, she came and joined in and had great fun with it. Just did it anyway. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> but again, an- another character who's absolutely beloved by Doctor Who fans and remembered so fondly by anybody who saw her on television at the time in the series. Yeah, so we killed her off. We killed her off. Yes, but nobody really dies in this, do they? I don't think about it being 50 years ago. You know, the moment I get into the studio and I stand on tippy toes and I take all my energy up into my chest, I've sort of... It's time is irrelevant to me. But, of course, we came in at exactly the same time, along with proper army uniforms as opposed to sort of, you know safari type suits with paper badges and things for you know so we had real army we had the master in my very first episode so it was a, it was a, it was a very exciting time and Roger Delgado you know one had seen him so often as a, as an actor always playing the baddie the evil I mean he had those eyes which I mean, even myopic Manning here, you know, once he started to hypnotise me, and you know, those eyes are and were, how should I say, very hypnotic. And he was so charming and so, you know, as the master, which I think is a lovely aspect to it, to have this charm and yet be this really evil person. But Roger was probably the sweetest, most gentle man you could possibly spend time with and we used to all go over for dinner and have lovely times on famille with Kismet and Roger and myself and John and Ingeborg and everything it was it was terrific times but the moment he put that little piece of hair on in the front and that beard uh, he became this extraordinary and what's so brilliant about his the way that he played it in my opinion was the fact that the most evil and the most cruel and nasty is always done very calmly. It's much more threatening. Oh, my goodness, yes. 50 years of Joe. A wonderful, wonderful character from that period of time where we were no longer saying assistant particularly and companion. That word was coming in. Liz Shaw had had really consolidated that as well. Joe built on that with her own spontaneity, gumption. And she always had a real great instinct. Sometimes if the Doctor was thinking in a very scientific, precise way, she would just come up with something, well, haven't you thought of this? Isn't that obvious? Yes, that's right, Joe. Yes, you're right. And she was full of that kind of gumption and lovability and energy. And I think she summed up that feeling when we were watching as as kids... We sort of wanted to help the Doctor. We wanted to be at his side helping the Doctor. And she would do what we wanted to do. You know, to run in the same direction. To surprise the villain with a moment of inventiveness. A lucky moment of inventiveness. A brilliant fizzing blend of, of all, all of those aspects. 50 years, my goodness. I'm Glenn McCready and I play various butlers, Castellan and the drones. Butler, switch it on and then go kill yourself. 
Very good, sir. Do it slowly, with a spoon. There's a good boy. Thank you, sir. With the the butler character, we just wanted to make it as archetypal as possible, and and I I'm sure I was very strongly influenced by the late great Sir Michael Horden, and I'd heard recordings of him playing um, Jeeves opposite Richard Bryer's Bertie Wooster, and what he was able to do tonally was just extraordinary so I'm, I think I was probably channeling channeling that for the butler and then the drone voice we were going through all sorts of different possibilities and I think we in the end it was a sort of a a rather zen bored Brit version of Hal from 2001 and then poor Castellan the last thing I think Gallifrey was expecting was a, a an instantaneous complete rout of an invasion and so I was just as Castellan just playing playing catch up I think and uh, and of course you know eventually I was toast and we've had Glenn reading Glenn McCready reading in for everybody else whilst we've recorded these pieces of the jigsaw as we've gone along I very cunningly cast one person to read in across all the recording sessions so that they had the responsibility of remembering what we'd done each time yeah to save me having to. Yeah. Cool. We are rolling and over to you. I'll go and fetch some fruit. The apples are just ready. Right, fresh fruit. I really mustn't impose on your hospitality any longer. Indeed. Johnny. No, he's right. I've disturbed your day. I've stolen your food. I'd hardly call it stealing. It was my pleasure. I mustn't linger. What you have here is paradise. I won't be the serpent. My involvement in Masterful has been just the most rewarding journey. I have worked with so many of the cast, reading in for actors who couldn't be there at the same time. And so I've got to see such extraordinary work and to play such extraordinary scenes that I would never ordinarily um, get the chance to play. And... Uh, riff with these actors who I've, you know, admired all my working life. Today, I have been working with the Saxon master, John Sim, and the war master, Sir Derek Jacobi. And um, it was the most, most wonderful day. There were times I was just... Well, there were times I forgot to come in on time when I was reading, um, because I was, as anyone would be, completely transported, you know, with their... uh, you know, with their voices in my ears, you know, wearing cans in the studio. And, uh, and th- I mean, there were times today I will have bruises from how many times I've had to pinch myself that, you know, I'm, I'm working on such extraordinary material with such really brilliant, brilliant actors. We've just finished recording, haven't we? We've just finished the last day, which was uh, Derek Jacobi and John Sim. What an epic this has been to put together, Ken. Yeah, I was going to say the last day of how many months' work? I think we started recording possibly August or September, did we? It's now the end of November, so three or four months' work. I think the first recording we did was Geoffrey Beavers, wasn't it? Didn't we start off with Geoffrey Beavers and Abigail McKern? Yes. And then Jason was in LA and he recorded Eric Roberts. I think that may have been the first one. That may have been the first one. I could be wrong. 
Scott did the recording with Mark Gatiss in September. You did Michelle Gomez, didn't you? Yep. Very late at night. I think you were recording till about midnight one that night. was a late one, that one. Yeah. Um, we picked up Gina McKee when yes. she was in recording Missy. So that was actually probably the first thing. To, that was uh, the first that thing was the first one. Recorded. And that was a while ago, wasn't it? Yes, because we didn't even have a script of that stage. Yeah. We had her scene. Her scene. Yeah. That was the first That's That's right. I knew, it was, uh, I knew there was something that meant this had been over quite some period of time. Yes. And we had a day in October, of course, when we had Katie Manning in with John Coleshaw. Of course. Didn't we? Yeah. And also one of the first sessions was Alex McQueen and Milo Parker together, wasn't it? That's right. And we were talking today, very sadly, we've literally just heard that Terence Dix has died. And, of course, Terence was was the man who came up with the master. So, if nothing else a tribute to him and his wonderful legacy for Doctor Who, but also that's such a great idea. I mean, it's it's one of those ideas that seems so obvious in retrospect. If the Doctor is Sherlock Holmes, then he needs a Moriarty, and then suddenly everything falls into place. And Barry Lett said, I know, I know just the man to play him, and, and everything else is history, you know. Fifty years of the master, my goodness. Um, who could forget those scenes from terror of the Autons and those speeches given by the wonderful much missed Terence Dix you know we thought we the doctor needed a sort of a Moriarty figure you see an enemy you know someone equivalent to his own intelligence but uh, an enemy Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty and it's, it's astonishing actually it's one of the most extraordinary characters you know one of the most wonderful characters to come through in Doctor Who and I think that has shown how we've had several people, wonderful actors, like with the Doctor, all giving their take on this incredible character and all bringing their own different magic and different writers being able to explore how and what kind of character. And, of course, he can come back like the Doctor in any way, shape or form. And I applaud Missy. I mean, I just... I think that's one of the most perfect turnarounds. I just think she's extraordinary in the character. It's, it's wonderful. But they've all been brilliant. And it was thanks to Barry Letts's reign that we have the Master. And you do need, I think, sometimes with the Doctor, you need that foe that can kind of pop up whenever they choose to. They don't have to be in every episode because otherwise it weakens their, their character because they're always going to lose, although not always. I remember seeing it as a kid. Weirdly enough, Doctor Who, to me, it was uh, Pertwee into Baker. I remember watching it then as a kid, being quite scared by it. Oh, yeah. And I used to collect... There were cards, and they used to come in tea packets. And you get if you sent off enough cards, you got a wall chart. I remember doing that. So Doctor Who, to me... It, it, the smell of tea bags <laughs> reminds me of Doctor Who. That was until I did this, and Very I do good. vaguely remember the master being um, sort of a magician with a goatee beard. I sort of vaguely yes, remember I, that. There are so many popular monsters and villains in the world of Doctor Who, but he's got to be the most iconic and charismatic, hasn't he? She, I think, it's a character that has really wormed its way into our psyche it's the anti-doctor yeah isn't it it's it's kind of it's it, we're celebrating it because it's the yang to the doctor's yin it, you can't if you're going to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the doctor and of doctor who you've got to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the master haven't you and i suppose every generation has their master as well don't they? yeah mine was roger delgado so okay 
So that gives me a huge nostalgic buzz. Yeah. If we're confronted with a unified mind, the Eternium will convert that creature into energy. Life energy. And that's why we're holding hands, just to stop a double cross. Perish the thought. When the Doctor and all the incarnations of the Doctor get together, they have an uneasy alliance, and there's a little bit of friction here and there, but they are all... You know, still extremely good, extremely moral characters. They are following the path of good. Good heavens, put all of the masters together. And it is like a cacophony of evil, of one-upmanship, of competitive petulance. It is the most beautiful chaos. Uh, James Goss, who's written this wonderful script, described it perfectly just in the room just before as... uh, you know, a dozen psychopaths all stuck together in a mini. And the energy it creates is uh, is breathtaking. As with Moriarty, the Master is, is sort of the, the most wonderful um, foil for the Doctor and always has been. I love, I love the fact, really, that despite, I think, the enormous shadow of Roger Delgado, that there is room for other sort of incarnations and that... The Doctor is fundamentally good and has different personalities. The Master is fundamentally bad and has different personalities. And I think there's something rather lovely about the sort of flowering of of Masters. I would say that because I am one of them. But, um, I mean, on TV and, and in audio, I think it's just nice to, to have different alternatives. And, um, and certainly uh, deserves to be recognised uh, 50 years on. Oh, well, what is, what's your very first memory of meeting Richard Oncott? It was one of those very frightening days in a sense because I was although I met John because we had to have that so we just had one gathering at the house that was the only real time but I hadn't worked or spent it so we all kind of turned up at the same day so there I was with I, I think I'm, I'm almost blank with fear because I basically learned everybody's lines I was just so nervous and, of course, you know, once my glasses were removed, I didn't really know who was what. But, you know, so to have those moments with Roger and then, of course, you know, then once we stopped and we were having lunch, you know, I had these completely different characters around me. You know, John was still very much John. And as an actor, I was I was really honoured to be working with him, but also terribly nervous, as I say, the same with John and Nicholas Courtney because they were people I had admired for such a long time. And it was only my sort of second job in the business, so this was, you know, quite something. But he was so easy to work with. You know, he was he was so generous. The only thing I learned about Roger, and I learned that very quickly on that, on that first filming, was Roger didn't like fighting or doing any of those sort of stunt things. That was not Roger. He was always immaculate, and he stayed immaculate, whereas, of course, John, and, and followed, of course, by me, because he realised that I was, gonna, I was up to have a go at anything, so that was great for John. But Roger always stood back and said, Nat, I don't do this, you know. He was, he was just wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I loved him so much. He was a sweet, sweet man, wonderful actor, brilliant creator of The Master. And uh, a dear, dear friend. 
I think uh, the character of the master has earned the, the celebration of, of being involved with this show for 50 years because everybody loves to hate the villain. And... Um, and there's just there's something so deliciously bad about the master, and certainly you know, for me, I'm still blown away that I, I'm on that list of masters. He's an iconic character, isn't he? He's the, um, he's the nemesis of the Doctor, the evil Doctor, the 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 baddie Doctor Who. I I always thought of him as uh, he thinks he's the equal to the Doctor. He's a Time Lord. He's everything the Doctor is, but. He's evil. <laughs> yeah. I think he's, he's quite popular, isn't he, among the, among the fans? Nothing like a bit of evil. Villains are always appreciated with more fun than the good ones, on the whole. He is truly iconic. When I first knew I was going to play the, the master in, in the, on the telly, before I was morphed into you, yeah. I was you know, telling my friends I was going to play the master. And... Uh, very sober for that I had no idea reacted you're going to be the master do actually say I am the master oh my god (laughs) you know Hamlet forget him Macbeth forget him (laughs) I'm the master it's true it's true yeah yeah. it'll probably end up being the defining role yes all these roles (laughs) yes yeah yeah I spent my whole life fighting a war. A war I fear none of you have the stamina for. No offence. All taken. This job is a job that keeps on giving because it's actually a job that never ends and it gets passed on from generation to generation to generation. They all talk about it with their kids. It is a job that keeps on giving. To be in in such a famous show... However big or small your contribution, I think to be part of of one of the iconic television shows, yeah, that was nice. Yeah, indeed, I completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. It's a re- real honour to be to be play yeah. this character. And, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Doctor Who just couldn't be Doctor Who without the Master. You know, this sort of gives the Doctor a sort of purpose, I suppose, in his plight for goodness. And the master's always there, you know, shining a light on the doctor's dark side. Because even though, you know, the doctor's a sort of reluctant hero, really, and he's sort of he's constantly being forced to be good, the doctor just couldn't help himself but, but try and clean up the world of evil. And, you know, the master provides plenty opportunity basically gives the doctor the work to do because he's just always in the background undoing things and sabotaging goodness. I remember the um, season um, eight, yes, season eight, very well. I have profoundly scary memories of Terror of the Autons because it affected me forever, still does, about the little uh, troll doll particularly. And obviously, because the master was in each of those stories, and it's, it's sort of—it's almost like the, the the prime season for me, because the the demons also very much badly affected me. <laughs> and and I suppose, you know, the uh, Roger Delgado was the the incarnation of that sort of villain. I mean, just brilliantly chosen. And and I love that thing now. In retrospect, you realise that you know Barry Letts had been an actor and. And if you watch Talking Pictures TV, as I do religiously now, you, you can see how a lot of these people first met and had been making films together for 25 years. And, and, and he's such a 
perfect piece of casting with those huge Spanish eyes and and the goatee and everything. And uh, and then that sort of clerical look is really interesting as well. And of course, black murderer's gloves, which every villain should have. And, but yeah, I mean, I just remember him being such a huge part of everything I loved about the show and, and it just clicked so completely perfectly. And I, I also I have very strong memories of, of annual illustrations, which of course filled in the gaps between times um, and, and, and how striking a, a sort of visual impression the master made. And then equally, I suppose, then when he wasn't in every episode, you, you'd just look forward to him coming back, particularly the Sea Devils, which is one of my absolute favourites. And when it was that, you know, the master was revealed in naval uniform and uh, Joe spots him, I remember whooping with joy. Having now got all these pieces of the jigsaw together, how does it sit in your mind? <laughs> There's a, a load of separate pieces of jigsaw. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to actually hear it edited. Yeah, it? yeah. I think we're allowed to say we've done this sort of thing before. So I'm very confident that it's all going to piece together and sound fantastic. But normally I know and I'm very confident. This time, I don't really know because it's been so many different sessions over such a long period of time. Um, with so many different combinations of people normally you have more consistent sort of recurring characters that I've no idea I don't mind saying I have absolutely no idea but because we've done this a few times before I've every faith it's going to sound fantastic Hello there this is John Colshaw and I am narrating the audiobook Terror of the Master by Trevor Baxendale, and it's a brilliant story. And I feel very lucky indeed to be narrating it for Big Finish. The Doctor looked back at the TV screen. Sitting opposite Gerald Farley was a dark, saturnine-looking man with jet-black eyes and a neatly trimmed beard. The Doctor knew him only too well. It's the Master, he said. This is a simply brilliant script. It's such an exciting story. It captures so magnificently the essence of the era of the Third Doctor. This is set a little after the Green Death and before the Time Warrior. So it's in that period between Joe Grant and Sarah Jane Smith. The Hoomobile is just getting its finishing touches and moderations done and what an era this is it's fascinating to look into this hitherto unseen window my name is Trevor Baxendale and I wrote Terror of the Master the Master smiled Mr Kirtland isn't it yes goodbye the Master pointed a device and Kirtland was shrunk in the blink of an eye to the size of a cockroach the brief was to write a story featuring the third Doctor and the Master set between the end of season 10 after Joe Grant left in The Green Death and the start of season 11 when Sarah Jane Smith arrived in The Time Warrior. So it could feature the Doctor and unit but no companion. Now that's immediately interesting because what's the Doctor like without a companion? What's he doing with his time? His exile on Earth is over. He's had his freedom restored by the Time Lords. Joe's left him for a younger version of himself. So why isn't he off in the TARDIS, wandering around all of time and space? 
What's he still doing knocking around with Unit at the start of the Time Warrior? Well, the answer to that, I think, is that he rather likes it. It's become a habit and a temporary base, and the familiarity of Unit and the Brigadier and the era have become rather ingrained. Now, the Doctor's aware of that, and he sort of resents it. His conscience is telling him that he should have left Earth for good and resumed his travels in time and space, but he can't quite let go. It's quite clear to me that my time with Unit may be drawing to an end. There was a sudden, very awkward silence in the lab. But but you're needed here, Doctor, said the Brigadier. You are still Unit's official scientific advisor after all. Official, Brigadier, the Doctor queried. So right up until Planet of the Spiders, his final story, he's still very much working as Unit's scientific advisor. All this fed into the kind of story I wanted to tell, and in particular, how the Doctor felt about the Master, who actively taunts him in the story about the fact that he's still on Earth. The Master loves needling the Doctor, and he knows exactly how to get under his skin. I love this era of Doctor Who because the third Doctor's era was the first one that I remember as a lad growing up, and I was instantly captivated and have been ever since. The third Doctor with that great strength, that great heroic dash, instantly knowing just what to do. His paternal, protective instinct, that great warmth that he he displayed and showed with all of his actions. The Brigadier also, a similar kind of reassurance and warmth. He was almost like your favourite uncle there, just to make sure you're all right. And the whole of the unit family... And just the excitement, the psychological fear in the stories. The sort of fear that you enjoy watching, because it's a sort of a challenge. But you know you're safe, you know you're in your living room and your mum and dad are making fish fingers and chips in the kitchen. So you know everything's ultimately alright. But it's just so exciting. And this story by Trevor Baxendale captures that essence completely. Nothing and no one was scarier than Roger Delgado's master. And when he turned up, you knew the Doctor was in real danger because he was up against somebody who was just as clever. What a joy to take on the character as close as I can of the Roger Delgado master. Thoroughly enjoyed the research to that, watching a great deal of Frontier in Space, The Demons, Colony in Space, Terror of the Autons, just to really load up on that deeply ominous, brooding, uh, saturnine quality of uh, Roger Delgado's master. As John Pertwee said, he created the part of the master, and frankly, he was superb, and also a very, very great friend of mine. What a wonderful character. That's always been your trouble, Doctor. You're a dreamer, an idealist. Well, my dreams are different to yours. I know. I've seen inside your mind, remember? And you've seen inside mine. The rivalry, the spark, the edge between John Pertwee's Doctor and Roger Delgado's Master. Just classic, golden, timeless material. Absolutely fantastic. And... That voice of Roger Delgado and the way he played the character, so 
so powerful, as my will so mote it be. I am the master, and you will obey me. Beautifully chilling. And uh, it, it was an honour to take it on. It really was. The character of Daisy, the unit corporal who's looking after Bessie and helping the doctor build his new car. Well, Daisy started life as Tom, but that made the script very male all the way through and the balance felt off. So I changed Tom into Daisy and suddenly a whole new aspect of the story appeared. A female mechanic, young and enthusiastic, perfect companion material for the Doctor. Someone who could perhaps fill the void in his life that had been left by Joe Grant. There's never a moment where the Doctor identifies Daisy as that person because that's not really how new companions work. But for the listener, it probably looks like an obvious development. So it was good to be able to subvert that expectation a little and remind the listener that being a soldier in unit is not a safe occupation and that the master, for all his charm and his wit, is a deadly adversary. To get ready for a narration like this, uh, an audiobook of this kind, firstly, the technical side of it, uh, I will get the digital version of the script, put it on an iPad and annotate it. Colour it in, in other words, all the spoken dialogue. I'll give those different colours so I know who's speaking. The Doctor would get a rich burgundy to match those velvet jackets. The Master would get a, an ominously brooding steel grey, gunmetal grey colour. Uh, the Brigadier and Captain Yates and Sergeant Benton, they would all get different shades of military green, khaki. And this is how you get to know who's speaking. But what a wonderful story. When I heard him playing the Brigadier on the Third Doctor Adventures, it gave me actual goosebumps. Because it was just Nicholas Courtney. And with all the warmth and good humour you'd expect. It was uncanny. Now, the really exciting thing on top of all that was the chance to hear John Coleshaw bringing the original Master to life as well as played by Roger Delgado. What an opportunity. <laughs> 